Get yourself ready for a trip through McDonald's land. Take along a friend and grab a hold of Ronald's hand. trick-or-treat safety cups. They're shiny aluminum foil with bright orange stripes, so they reflect light. Me! Where'd you get them? Right at McDonald's. <sighs> this Halloween, be sure you're all wearing McDonald's trick-or-treat safety cups. Children should be seen and not hurt. Drink wine, monkey chew tobacco on the street car line. Now the line's broke, the monkey got choked, and they all went to heaven in a little rowboat clap hands. <laughs> Damn, you're not allowed to sing on the show anymore. Right? I know, I know. <laughs> well, I'm not singing, I'm doing nursery. What do you call those? We're, we're, we're doing double dutch. <laughs> Blake, jump in. <laughs> Cinderella dressed in yellow went upstairs to me. one, two, <laughs> three. Tied one end to the. Uh to the side of the <laughs> stair. Railing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we're playing yeah. our double toe. What the fuck? Oh, for you. Enough. <laughs> When's it gonna end? <laughs> That's yeah. a little Stallone there. <laughs> you doing double dutch. What the hell are you doing? Hey, yo, Dion, what's <laughs> going on? Why is the, why is the railing loose? <laughs> because imagine if you fall, you know, because you're, you get caught up. Yank it right <laughs> out. <laughs> <laughs> All you hear is, <laughs> Yeah, when's it gonna end? Oh gosh! So um, let's see. This is another exciting edition of the 2019 Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Is horror movie extravaganza? We're in what episode two? Three. It's episode three. With receipt, we're week three in. It's actually a little bit of like a two-parter. This is kind of. Yeah, it is. You know, you have to be like previously, previously on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Previously on Ready to Die. Yeah, previously <laughs> on Saturday Movie Sleepovers. So then we're talking about easy comics, and then then Blake Frederick were them, and was that an asshole they was, and that so subversive, and then ha 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 I'm Dion Baya, and I am Jay Blake, and yeah, so we kind of planned it that way. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode on. 
that was a double feature on Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror, mm-hmm. which also we mm-hmm. got into the, we set up about the EC Comics. Yes, so part one of, of especially. Yeah. And part this, one and a half. <laughs> yeah. And this is part, this is part two. And uh, we, we, we set the proverbial table, so to speak, last week with stuff, so we don't have to get into really. Yeah. Imagine we just, we did. So EC Comics. So <laughs> <laughs> just, you can just cut it in. Yeah, exactly. Ed, edit the front of the last episode. Yeah, and then just take the, the, you know, we'll, we'll do different tales and, you know, heads of the different takes, and then it sounds slightly like altered. the special edition. Yeah, the special un, unrated edition, the director's like cut. Five years from now. Yeah. We put it out, we can just. I'll add the whole f- six hours. The EC Comics. <laughs> Uh, discussion. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we, we have different editions. The EC Comics edition. The uh, blah blah blah. The bim- we kind of did it strategically. In yes. That uh, if we didn't do the EC Comics discussion in a in a previous episode, we were going to have to do it here for for the movie that we're doing tonight for continuity and which is backstory. Creep Show, nineteen eighty two. Yeah, Creep Show. So we kind of discussed. Uh, you know, we both like those. Uh, those British Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror movies. Amicus. The Amicus movies. So we decided, well, if we do that first, yeah. we can cover all the EC comic stuff in that so that when we do Creep Show, we don't have to spend an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> talking about <laughs> EC comics. <laughs> and the, the My favorite tweet in the last couple of weeks has been uh, when Superman 2 came out. Oh, yeah. And it was like somebody wrote... Uh, Saturday at Sad Sleepovers, uh, at Sad Sleepovers' hour and 45 minute recap of the history of Superman was really great. And I was like, hour and 45 minutes? Yeah, now I'm getting to the movie. <laughs> we didn't even get to the movie yet? Jesus. That was, we didn't even get to the motion picture yet, probably. At that <laughs> exactly. Point. Then we, we even glossed over that, really. We just we were going to edit in, you know, that was, that was the joke as we lost the whole tape of us doing um super you know doing the motion picture um i should make an amendment from last week uh because you know people are telling us to be correct on facts and stuff we mentioned that we were pretty sure we we didn't we didn't know we did know but then because we're talking it just it's it's a it's a it's a you know thought flow flow you know going out and stuff we were talking about the pilot to the um TV series, and we were thinking that it was maybe the uh, Christmas one, the episode that appeared in the uh-huh. original Tales from the Crypt movie. That was actually episode two, directed by Richard Donner. The pilot episode, and I, this is why I tell you that we knew this, is, um, I forget the name of the episode. It's like the man, <laughs> the man who was death, I think I'm paraphrasing, but it was directed by Walter Hill, and it had in it um, William Sadler. And I have a William Sadler story where... Years ago, William Sadler was came to my job promoting a new TV show he had on Fox called Maybe Wonderland that came and went for only for a season that he was a dad on. So I come in, he's he's doing a hit, and he's coming out of the studio into the green room, and I'm like, holy shit, it's William Sadler. And I'm thinking, you know, I love him in that twi- uh, Tales from the Crypt episode. So I, I walked up to him and I go, William Sadler, I go, I'm such a big fan of yours, I loved you in, and then my mind blanked. And he looked at me and he goes... You love me in, and he goes, um, he goes Green Mile, and I go, no, <laughs> no, no I didn't love you in that. One. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, uh, <laughs> he's like um, Bill and Ted's bogus, yeah, Bill and Ted's bogus. I go, no, he no, goes, no, you were okay though. I mean, no, no, I don't love you. 
he goes, this is what happened. He goes, Deep Space Nine. I go, no, no, no. He goes, Die Hard 2. I go, no, 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 no. And he's like, uh, what's the what's the movie I love with him and Ice Cube and everybody? Uh, I'm always bringing that up. Ice-T and Ice Cube are in it, and they're on the, they have the building, and they, they go into the building. It might even be a Walter Hill movie. Um, oh, but he mentions that, and I'm like, no. And he's like, then he's running now. He's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, let me bring up my high uh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is before that. And then, he's, then finally I go, Tales from the Crypt. I loved you in your episode of Tales from the Crypt. And he looked at me. He was like, oh, thank you so much. And then I took a picture of him. And that was it. But it was funny that he, Trespass is the name of that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he went through everything. And then he was getting through, like, he was getting into the, the weeds with some of the stuff. Like, he like, my appearance and, you know. And then <laughs> and I, when uh, I said it to him. Magnum? I, I, yeah, exactly. Sledgehammer? <laughs> <laughs> and he, it's, he finally said, to, when, when I said it to him, I caught him off guard because I don't think he's ever say, heard that before. And he's like, oh, thank you. And I got a picture. If I can dig it out, I can find it. Uh, I'll put it in. It was like, for, this is from like 2004 or five. So it is pre-phone internet yeah, where you can just yeah. go on and look, you know. And uh, he was a really nice guy and it was really funny. And I am a huge fan of his. And like, you know, when I ran up to him and it was just, just hilarious how if your mind blanks and he's sitting there trying to be patient with you. And uh, the reason I say all this story is because that was the pilot episode with Walter Hill. So what they must have did was Walter Hill directed the pilot with him. And that's a really good episode where he's talking to the camera. And he's the, he's the if you remember, he's the executioner who kills people with the electric chair. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, I guess, pass capital punishment reform in his state, California. So he loses his job. And so he just starts killing people who are you know, getting off anyway. And then he ends up going to the chair himself. Spoiler now, alert. could it have been a case... Now this is we're all getting off. Yeah, we've all, we haven't even got out of yeah, the driveway. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> we just turned the car on and it's warming up. <laughs> the Where on. the the pilot was two. Oh, I don't know. It was like an hour long thing with two stories. Oh, it could have been. And I mean, then, and then in, and then in syndication or whatever, they it got cut split it up. up into two. Well, I have the box set of all the seasons, so I recently just watched episodes one and th- episodes one and three because I'd seen two recently. Yeah. So that's how I, this is refreshing my memory, and it was. I feel like it was an hour that episode, but again, I could be wrong. Maybe they were all hours. I don't know. This is where we're now. We're already making things up. People are gonna get mad. But that was all the right. first episode. Second was Richard Donner, and then the third episode was. Uh, I think it was the Zemeckis one. Like they did, all, they you know the, all their producers. They did them all in order. Yeah. And the the third episode was with um, uh, Pantoliano, where he's uh, oh. they they the doctor puts like nine lives from a cat in in him, so he has nine lives. So he he becomes a circus act with what's his face from Batman, uh, you know uh, Alexander Knox. Okay. You know, you don't see him a lot, but he's like the ring tamer guy, like, step right up, everybody, you know, and he's getting people, he's, you know, they're hanging them, they're burying them alive and all that kind of a thing, and then there's a twist ending there, you know, and I think that was done by Zemeckis, so they must have all took a, each one directed out of the gate to get, you know, everyone looking at it. But, but anyway, that's the change, that, 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 that the Christmas one was episode two. But before all that happened. But before all that happened, we go back to the old, the lovely year in 1982. 1982, Creep Show. Yeah. George A. Romero. And Stephen King. Yeah. They team up. Yeah. 1982 has been said by many to be one of the greatest years of at least American cinema. So I thought it was worth just listing off some of the things that also came out in 1982, the same year as Creepshow. All right. Here we go. John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. So you got got Romero, you got Carpenter, you got Toby Hooper with Poltergeist. Yeah. Which is actually Stephen Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a whole discussion that we'll get into uh, when that when happens. When we do that, 
Blade Runner, yeah, Tron, yeah, E.T., yeah, Star Trek Two, yeah, Wrath First, of Khan, First Blood, and yeah. Rocky Three. Yes, one of my favorite movies, Tootsie. Yep, Conan the Barbarian, <laughs> Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, <laughs> Halloween. That's 3. that's where he gets his mask. Season of the Witch. Yep, that other one. And Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth Part Three was in three D. Yes, it, it was. Out. That's the three D craze. Uh, Dark Crystal. Yeah. Basket Case, classic. You love Basket Case. <laughs> Tenebrae by Argento. Yeah. So all these horror masters had movies come out. Swamp Thing, Wes Craven. Yeah. Uh, Beast Master by Don Coscarelli. Yeah. Here's a here's an oddball one, that, but also a movie I love. My favorite year with uh, Peter O'Toole and Mark Lynn Baker. Nice. <laughs> no, Joe and, Don Baker? No, Mark Lynn Baker, sorry. <laughs> and uh, Cue the Winged Servant by Larry yeah. Cohen. And and, East, a, and he, there's many other movies. I think Eastwood's Firefox is that year too. That would that was a pretty so big Eastwood one. had one come out. So, 1982 was quite a year for cinema. And amongst can you imagine? Oh, that, I mean, that's a that's a lot of movies you can go see. And amongst all that greatness, that cinematic greatness was Creepshow. Creepshow. And Creepshow did it really well too. I mean, it was number one at the box office for like a solid week, right? For a whole week, and uh, and I think it repla- I think it had replaced when it came out First Blood. Yeah, uh, uh, in the box office charts uh and this is a movie that i've always loved and i think um i don't know if i've said this to you but i have such an affinity for night of the living dead and dawn of the dead and day of the dead especially night but i feel like creep show might be my favorite romero movie hmm, interesting you know uh because for me it's like the most polished it's it's really just it's just just this beautiful homage and i, I don't even look at it so much as i mean i guess i do look at it as an homage to the ec comics but for me it's just it's such a beautiful you know, this 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 nice present to us. Yeah, yeah. You know, and well, then it's a, it's an interesting movie in that I feel like we talked about it maybe when we did Night of the Creeps. Okay, and I brought up that what you know one of the things that I was fascinated about Night of the Creeps is that Night of the Creeps is a movie that our generation has nostalgia for. Sure, but that movie itself is a piece of nostalgia for the things that uh, that generation that was. Decker Steve. Fred Fred Decker was yeah. uh you know so that was a that was a nostalgic for like the 50 sci-fi movies and the Romero zombie movies and all that stuff and so I feel like Creepshow is definitely like that too Sure our generation and the generation before ours Yeah you know uh grew up with Creepshow and had a lot of, have a lot of nostalgia for Creepshow but Creepshow itself is like a a beautiful homage of you know of the nostalgia that Romero and King had for EC Comics. Now, interestingly, and this is something that we've talked about on the show because uh, in in when Romero passed away, we did a, an impromptu tribute to Romero episode, and uh, we did Dawn of the Dead last year or the year before. I think we did Dawn last year. Yeah, yeah, for Halloween. Yeah, probably about a year ago. Yeah, and was that the only Romero we've done? I it. I think it is. I can't think of any other. We haven't done night, dawn, and day. We haven't done Martin. We haven't done the crazies. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that might be the only. So this might be the second Romero we're doing. Yeah, and his only non-written screenplay movie because Stephen King, of course, did it. Yeah. So at least up until that point. Yeah. <coughs> I can't remember. Oh, yeah. I can't remember if he wrote the Dark, Dark Half, Half yeah. or Monkey Shines. I mean, they were based on other properties, but I don't remember if he wrote the scripts. Um, but I feel like I guess because we talk about him so much with our zombie-ish movies. Sure, you know? and we did. He's the only person we've done like a whole tribute episode to. We did. Um, didn't we do what's his face, Dick Smith? 
We did, but that was that was a leftover from the side. That was cast. a leftover thing. Yeah. Hey, you know, and on the side, I thought I remember being the first guy to talk about sidecast because I see people on Twitter saying it now. We should do a sidecast on this or that. Dion invented the term. Are you sure? Because now, because I'm not, well, I'm not saying I'm getting mad. I'd never heard of it. Before. Okay, because I thought it's like a podcast, and when I came to started coming to you, I was like, let's do something on the side, hence a sidecast, mm-hmm. you know. And then I was doing that with the Podwits, but I yeah, see it now. That, I mean, that so that was 2013, 12, 14. No, I mean, because this show is five years old. This we started in 2014, yeah, September 14. So we're talking like 12, 13. Yeah, when I was I was doing Podwits since 2011, and I did two. Podwits from 2011 to probably 2015 or 16. So around when we started doing it. But then the reason I say it is because I see people saying, you know, let's do a sidecast. And I'm like, and I started thinking like, did I read that somewhere? You know, like, you know, I don't, you know, you know I can't even tell you what I ate for breakfast yesterday. But anyway, so we've done so much side, you know, we did, I think we did like, you know, various sure, yeah, genres. Yeah. I feel like we talk about Romero all the time. But as I've stated in previous episodes that I had not seen a George Romero movie before I met Dion. Oh, really? And so my, a lot of my love and appreciation from, of George Romero stems from us living together. That time when you got kicked out of your house? <laughs> <laughs> no, when we were in college together. Yeah, yeah. And so, and you after know, that. I think Romero comes up a lot on the show because um, we bonded a lot with of that? my nostalgia comes from, you know, when we met and we, and you know, we lived together in a single room. So we were having sleepovers every night. <laughs> yeah. If we wanted to or not, we were having a sleepover <laughs> together. And sometimes other people will come sleepover too. And, you know, and so, you know, Dion introduced me to night of the living dead and dawn of the dead and day of the dead. And you introduced me to Martin. And then, uh, but, but I, but I fell in love with Martin around that same time. Yeah. So I hadn't seen Martin before we met. And then that same year that we met and you kind of introduced me to the to the dead films is also when I discovered Martin and fell in love with it. And so then, you know, then we watched Martin together um, based on like my love of Martin. And then I'm trying to think if I saw Creepshow with you. I don't remember. Before that. I did eventually see Creepshow with my buddy Steven, uh, IFC Center down in the village uh, several years ago, did midnight screenings on Friday of Saturday, but it was like every feature film that was um, based on Stephen King. Oh, I've seen, they, they, and they put the flyer out, and I see that. Like, yeah, so I don't believe they tried to screen any of the television-related things, but... They did all the feature films, and I think in order. And Stephen was like, "I'm going to go see Creep Show on like midnight on a Saturday. Do you want to go?" And I was like, "Sure." And uh, that wasn't the first time I had seen it, but how long ago was this? Four f- years ago. Yeah, maybe, maybe five. And uh, I feel like I had seen it before that, but I don't think I would have watched it if either with you, if it wasn't with you. Or Dave Hastings of the Brothers Hastings, who also is a huge um, Creepshow fan. Yeah, oh, Creepshow uh, itself. Yeah, I mean, he, the Romero in general, but Creepshow specifically. Um, it's funny because Dave had taped off of like TNT, some cable network, uh, Creepshow. And on that particular airing, at the commercial breaks, they had interview site, new interview segments I believe it's Creep Show with Romero. Okay. And so at some point Dave had isolated all those interview segments and put them on 
YouTube, and maybe we can put a link to them uh, on uh, when we yeah, on our site when we when we post the episode as an extra. Yeah, and it's funny because they, they got post they posted them, and then Dave got a message or an email from a friend of the show, Jeff Lieberman, who made Squirm and and uh, Just Before Dawn and and uh, Blue Sunshine, sure. saying, you know, I directed those segments. Where did you find them? And Dave was like, oh, I uh, I taped them off of TV. And uh, f- also, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> and we have a mutual friend. I'm a fr- I'm an old friend of Blake Fischera's. <laughs> and, and Jeff was like, oh, man. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Blake, I said, I. Dave had forwarded me the email. How long ago was this? This was like two years ago. Did he ask him to take it down? Like, was he mad about having him having him up? No. Oh, that's He was nice. kind of excited about it. And then funny enough. I guess because he has him now. It's one of the websites, like Dread Central or one of the horror movie websites. Somehow, I think then Jeff Lieberman posted, like, shared them on social media. The video, the video. So, so Dave's uh, thing was trending. I know, but yeah, but the whoever whoever then posted that said like these rare things never never gave Dave credit, credit to Dave for putting it up there. Dave like, of the Lieberman brothers Hastings. shared these, and I was like in the comments, I was like, well, my buddy Dave, <laughs> he's the guy that did he took the time, he taped this back in the day, and he isolated it and then he used his video. That's pretty hard using two tapes to isolate stuff and all that. So. Uh, so we definitely have to put that as an extra. Yeah. I so did you, if they're still up, we'll definitely put it. We'll anything um, in there them. that's unique? You know, I, I completely forgot about them until... Just now. Just now. Yeah. So I haven't watched them in, like, years. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so Creepshow was not a film that I grew up with, is, is kind of the point of all this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a film that Dion grew up with, and but uh, I have been asked on many... For some reason, I have been asked on many podcasts... Uh, to guest and talk about George Romero. I'm sure. not sure why. You love I, George Romero. I think I do. Because um, when he passed away, you were the, it was the, your impetus, like, hey, we should get together and talk about this. Yeah. That's why we did that spontaneous episode. I think it all probably stemmed from the fact that James Hancock at Wrong Reel asked me to come on and talk about George Romero. We did like a three-hour George Romero-thon. Uh, and I think maybe based on that, people started to say, oh, like, George Romero's his favorite part. Uh, filmmaker, and it's funny because at the time George Romero wasn't one of my favorite filmmakers. But in in doing that episode, and then being asked to talk about George Romero um, on all these other shows, talk about Martin and all these, like George Romero has become one of my favorite sure. <laughs> filmmakers as I've revisited his stuff. Because there's a very interesting thing that happens when there's a very it's very different to watch a person's body of work over several years compared to watching somebody's body of work in like seven days. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I was like preparing for wrong reel, I had like, in, like basically for two weeks or a week and a half, all I did was like, I got up Prepping every morning <laughs> early and watched the George <laughs> Romero movie every day before work. You're like taking a shit and you're like, watching, you know, because we coffee. basically talked about all of his films even the um, except except for the zombie movie, season of the witch and the, yeah. the non Halloween three. We and, might not talk about there's always vanilla or yeah. whatever that weird romantic comedy is. Yeah, but all of his horror movies, uh, minus the dead films. Although we we did talk about them, but we didn't want to focus on the dead films because everybody sure does stuff on the dead films. Yeah, so we did mention them, and I probably watched them. Yeah, but I sat there and watched in order all of everything. 
all of his, his filmography, his entire filmography. And when you sit there and you watch somebody's entire filmography in that short amount of time in chronological order, it does make a different impact on you because you see kind of like the growth, sure, of the filmmaker and certain things that they're, uh, you know, that they that become recurring things. Um, and so in doing that, Romero's become a huge. Uh, filmmaker for me and we did dawn of the dead last year but in full disclosure i think we had it we were under a timetable when we recorded so i think we were yeah it was we, truncated time yeah because i think we did two yeah we, yeah i didn't want to say that but we did two <laughs> we did we did back to back we did frankenstein and then we did dawn of the dead so when we got to dawn, of the dead, and dawn i yeah. don't remember which because we had to even move locations remember my parents got mad so we had to move from one location to the other yeah, so we were like in the basement the, to the attic yeah we're like in the bathroom that. or something <laughs> You know, that's like shower, and we're like, you know, Dad, you're getting talc all over me. Um, so I feel like the, our dawn cast was not rushed, but you know, we had to keep on task. We didn't have the time yeah, to relax well, and talk about nonsense. Yeah, long. regular, long, yeah, long. <laughs> Everybody else cast, taking their time, you know. But I, for years, I think we've always talked about us hitting maybe Night of the Living Dead, either the original or I have such an affinity for the remake. Yeah, yeah and then a big supporter of the 1990 remake. Yeah, and then uh, I love Day of the Dead. You know, and then I've come to really appreciate Day of the Dead yeah. over the years. And I guess he got a Saturn Award too, Savini for his special effects, because he thought Creep Show was his best, his masterpiece. And then I guess shortly after, when he did Day of the Dead, he considered that his masterpiece. And I don't know what he says since then. Maybe he thinks other things have pushed the the limit. But um, and I'm not so much a fan of Land of the Dead. I actually liked Document of the Dead. Document of the Dead, Diary of the Dead. I mean, I'm sorry, Diary of the Dead. Yeah. And then I really didn't care for that last one, um, which I, you I know. regretfully have to say that I still have not seen the last one. It was a survival of the dead. Yeah, and uh, I've heard people say that you're not missing much, but it's it's good to see it. It's just interesting where yeah, they, they came into like it became like almost. A I comedy. probably one of the reasons why I probably haven't seen this because I know you didn't care for. It's just weird. There's a lot of weird jokes. And I was like, oh, you know, even, I didn't care for it. I don't need to rush. <laughs> you know, even like at the, get to it. the beginning, Romero had like the one, the, he had like an opening, like, listen, you know, we had a lot of fun making this, so please laugh. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he had that. You know, then when you watch it, it's like, you know, there's st scenes with like something, if I remember correctly, like someone throws a grenade at some point, like on a dock, because people are in a gunfight, and the guys are like, you know, in like a wooden shed and it blows up and then all of a sudden the shed's gone and they just have like black soot over themselves like a cartoon and i was like what the well you know? that's not focused no on not at all some of his lesser work no i mean that's still great of, you know i mean masterpieces um and you look at the longevity too where Stallone they remade the stallone longevity <laughs> that's they, <laughs> the name of our stallone podcast <laughs> the stallone that's really good <laughs> well you know they've remade night <laughs> Which started the genre. They made they remade Dawn. They remade Day, although it really didn't have anything to do with it. I think they even remade Day again. Which maybe they just taken the title. They remade the Crazies. One of the remakes <laughs> of Day, I believe, was directed by Steve Miner. Yeah, is that the one with um, Ving Rhames and Nick Cannon and uh, maybe the girl Polly, who's in Dawn of the Dead? Um, I want to say. I mean, I could be wrong. I feel like it was. Well, I feel like one of them was directed by Steve Miner. Yeah. Steve Miner was a protege of Sean Cunningham and did some of the Friday the Thirteenth stuff, and then I think went on to do some of the house, one of the house movies, or both of them. And he might have also directed H two O. Okay, if Halloween. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, this is all off the top of my head. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But uh, they're already clicking away. Oddly enough, an old uh, bass player of mine who I was in a band with short-lived band called stiletto wheels nice stiletto wheels his, one engagement only the bass player his wife is an actress and is is in one of those 
the Steve, whatever the Steve Miner Day of the Dead is. Oh, really? Did yeah. she get a big part? I don't know. She, we talked about Steve Miner. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah. Knew, I, I think I was working on the book at the time. You so talked to her or you talked to him? It, both. Okay. It was one of our, she would come to our gigs and so. Yeah, you're just chatting about it. She good yeah, looking? She's, yeah, she was actually very pretty. <laughs> nice. But, uh, <laughs> you're pretty. And he was a huge fan of Goblin. The bass player. Yeah. Or Steve Miner. But not of the movies. Like he had never heard any of their soundtracks. He knew the, the one, he knew like their one, one of their only non-soundtrack albums, Roller. And he was a big fan of Roller. That's and that was the same year. Very that, eclectic. <laughs> niche that was right around the time that uh goblin came back yeah because i started the book after seeing goblin and then goblin came back with a slightly different lineup and he's the one that i went to don't even bring it up new haven don't bring it up <laughs> one of the biggest regrets of my life was that uh they played in the haven the haven that's how that's how the, the locals say it in haven when you know people aren't from like anyone needs to know this if they say new haven you know it's like saying like i guess new orleans yeah. New Orleans, it's New Haven. Uh, they played like a chapel yeah. on the New Haven Green, and and I think it's not it's an actual church, like it's not like it's a venue, you know. I mean, they do yeah, yeah. they do still have they mass must have events stuff. there, but they do have mass there. And I think it's it's I'm sure it's I think it's like a Protestant church or a Baptist or Episcopal. It's not it's not like a Catholic church, but it's a nice old church. And Goblin played in that as a venue, and I missed it last minute or whatever but anyway let's turn around creep show i mean it's still slightly romantic they yeah did, we're they romero. Music for <laughs> yeah um but uh creep show for me is again we talked last week about my old friend marvin jones this was another one of those things on his tape when i went over there in fifth grade we were cranking him in and this was uh, you know we're, we're we're drawn at this point we're into comic books that was what we would do is we would sit down in front of the tv i get some paper he gets some paper and we would just draw all day he had this character called tiger leo that was his and it was tiger leo and his trio and this marvin would make he had like 300 different characters he would just make it he would just do like a what do you call those you know like when you have like a a one sheet of like the character and it's stats yeah, and then yeah. that he would just and then every day that would he look at this you know he had a like a whole world and it was crazy so um we would draw comics all day long i would draw dick tracy's whatever and then in the background we watch these horror movies or we watch tales from the crypt the show or tales from the crypt the movie the dawn of the deads the day of the deads you know and uh he put creep show on and creep show Again, it, seeing it like that, taped off of probably HBO because it was uncut, but it's on a shitty, you know, old tape maybe yeah. from his parents or I don't know, you know. It was not in widescreen. Not yeah. in widescreen, although I don't think this is too wide. I mean, it's not like 235, but, yeah, but you know. Still. still, yeah. But it's the nostalgia seeing it like that. Yeah, and but still these, like the frames sure have to be you're right kind of weirdly altered right? yeah i mean i didn't notice but i guess you do when you, you bring it up i mean widescreen is always better so you're right but it's just it's just you know I, mean? I mean like the comic book for it yeah yeah I so know. when you're when you're going through stuff so the so it's just a i've had such an affinity for this growing up and it's always been with me where uh every couple of years i revisit it I, it's not a movie i ever get old that i i'm like ah, i've seen it too many times i have to wait because i guess i wait so much to go and revisit it again and every time i do revisit i do have memories of watching it with people but i don't have a memory of watching it with you um maybe and we didn't watch it maybe i watched it with dave yeah but it's just you know it's one of these movies where i lo i love his other stuff you know for for you know for what it is a lot of it uh especially the zombie films because they've had such an impact on me but then creep show just hit me because i guess i love the anthology horror i love the old shows like that so 
Um, and then with the tie into the comic books at the time, it's really, really cool. All right, good night, everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, how the impetus, the inception, the creation of Creepshow stems back uh, 1978. George Romero and his producing partner, Richard uh, Rubenstein, they had a company called Laurel Entertainment. And uh, they might not have... Ha- Laurel Entertainment n- may not have officially existed by the time they made Martin. That was the first film they did together. Yeah. Uh, but the success critically of Martin kind of piqued the interest of uh, whoever owned the, the filming rights to Salem's Lot. Yeah. And apparently they had been putting a lot of money into adapting Salem's Lot. Uh, tons of people had written scripts for it. And, and the idea, I guess, at the time was for it to be a feature. I yeah. mean, uh, uh, you know, th- theatrically yeah. released. It eventually becomes like a TV double feature, like a miniseries. But which at is the time, huge at the time as well. But the idea at the time was that it was going to be a feature film, and so whoever had the rights had this bright idea. It's like, hey, you, you know, George, you just made a movie about a vampire in a small town, and we have the rights to this book about vampires in a small town. Why don't you take a ver- like the latest version of the script, read it, go up to Maine. Hang out with Stephen King. I love the stories are always that it's it's almost like The Godfather. You have to go up to Maine. <laughs> I spent several weeks in Maine with Stephen King in Bangor, wherever he is, because he's pretty far up there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just funny that you. I mean, I and I would love Maine's amazing to go up. That's my kind of weather. So it's just funny that everyone goes up to see him for a couple of days and meet him and hang out with him. That's so cool. So they must have done this. To so Richard chat. Rubenstein and George Romero go up there for like seven days or something like that. Seven days. Seven days. He was a forty pecu- days and forty nights. <laughs> he was a peculiar man. Yeah, um, but then the conversation gradually also they talk so, about Salem's so, Lot. Yeah, and Stephen King's like, "Well, look, look at all of these books. Yeah, these over <laughs> these over here, I still own the rights for. Yeah. Are there any of these that you'd be interested in maybe doing? Uh, you know, after Salem's Lot. I mean, the, 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 the and so." Because King was a huge fan of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. You know, and he he knew uh, Romero's work because he's a horror guy, of course. And I guess they, if you look at it, they kind of had the same trajectory. I My my memory escapes me of when um, uh, his first book comes out, King's book. Yeah, but he was definitely writing books in the early 70s. And yeah, and, and, and sh- short stories. He was yeah. submitting short stories into like playboy or whatever the at the time was still i think those collections became like skeleton crew carrie must night shift carrie must have been the early 70s yeah carrie comes out and what year is the palmas carrie uh late 70s i think right like 78 79 80 maybe no earlier than that because 76 maybe because i think pj souls gets cast in Halloween because she was in Carrie. So let's say 76. We'll go 77, we're gonna, 76. We're going to go 76. Yeah, and then what year is Salem's Lot? I forget what that year that is. That's like, that becomes like 80, 79, 80. Yeah, so his first three books, like Carrie, Salem's Lot, and then The Shining are huge. And then he, I think at the time he puts out, uh, you know, they're doing um, the short stories or night shift. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's, you that's know, a whole interesting crew. other part of it that I would like to yeah. kind of cover, which is like thinking about Stephen King's career at the time of Creepshow. Yeah, but first, before we get to that sure. part, so he's like, he's like, look at look at my bookcase. <laughs> look at look my how children. big it is. <laughs> yes, yes, the children of the night. What beautiful music they make. So and then they 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 their eyes they rest start upon talking the about stand. The stand. Yeah, yeah. and so and I don't know what year the stand is either. But the miniseries comes out in the late eighties, uh, maybe or 90, 91 maybe. maybe. Yeah. 
early 90s. Yeah, so. and then so they're talking about maybe doing the stand, and, you know, that would be amazing. Now, apparently Richard Rubenstein ends up at some point buying the rights to the stand. Well, he ends but, up doing a lot of Stephen King movies down the line. But, like, there TV is... TV movie ones. Because they're like, let's, you know, they, they start discussing doing the stand, and, and George Romero said in many interviews that he has, like, an original uh, printing of the stand that... Stephen King's like, you know, to George, maybe someday we'll make this one. Uh, and because then, you know, George and, and Richard Rubenstein, they leave, and then eventually it becomes Salem's Lot. The idea of Salem's Lot goes from being a feature theatrical film to being a TV movie, which I believe was directed by Toby Hooper. I think you're right. James Mason's in it. It's it's and it does very well. It becomes a legendary TV movie. Yeah, because that was Souls from from Tarski and Hutch, Starsky and director, Hutch, I believe, and Magnum Force. Um, <laughs> I believe he's in it. Well, you know, and we've talked about at length I haven't about seen that since we were in college. I haven't either. seen that since we, me, you, and Dave Hastings watched it. Yeah. Uh, and it was a lo- it was the unedited long yeah, one. It was like we did yeah. that baby in one day. And it was like, like Sunday afternoon. And we we're like, ooh. <laughs> um, after we had some McDonald's or something, coming back in his van, we were all kinds of tired. But that, at the time, we've talked about how big TV movies were at the time and TV sure. horror movies. So I remember that being in a, I don't remember, but that was an event. Yeah. It was very I mean, popular when that came sure, out. Sure, there was like this thing of like TV wasn't as good as movies in many people's eyes, but TV movies were a big deal and we've talked about them uh, a lot on the show. And we will continue to talk about yeah. them a lot. But anyway, so. That gets made without them. So that ends up getting made without them. What's, uh, since we're here, what's he say to him? He says, uh, oh, Jesus, I used to love that line, James Mason's line, where he's like, uh, Bonnie Sarah. And then a the guy goes, is, 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 are you Italian? He goes, no, but the phrase is. <laughs> he says something like that. I always <laughs> love that, you know. Because he, I think, if I remember correctly, James Mason's kind of like the, the Renfield in it. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's the... Uh, this the, was so long. Yeah, the, the, the uh, Dwight Fry. To talk about Yeah, so I, I always love that line. No, but the phrase is. So anyway. And uh, they keep going, and then they make... Um, so they get the rights to the stand. And at this point, they had made Dawn of the Dead... And they had seventy eight, and they made a three picture deal with uh, what's it? What you call it? What you call it? It was a subsidiary of uh, United Picture, United Artists. Okay, it was like United Film Distribution or something like United Film Distribution. Sure, sure, sure. So so based on the success of Dawn of the Dead, uh, which did really well, even though it was gory as all hell. Yeah, you know. Uh, Romero ends up making uh, Romero and Richard Rubenstein Laurel Entertainment ends up making a deal a three picture deal with uh, UFD okay Uh, and that deal includes Knight Riders okay which is a particular favorite of mine sure eventually Day of the Dead okay which is 85 I think yeah and uh, some of the movie that was going to be in between there was a movie that never got made, which was a 50s-style sci-fi spoof called Invasion of the Spaghetti Monsters. Sounds like it has some, uh, <laughs> some potential right there. Sorry, Tom Atkins and, like, you know, I don't know. But I'm guessing after Knight Riders, which Stephen King has a yeah, cameo it's his, in. It's his first appearance as doing a little acting. They, Richard Rubenstein and George Romero have the rights to the stand, and they decide they want to make the stand and Stephen, based on a script by Stephen King, because that's the other part of the thing, which we're, Dion was kind of, you know, part of what I kind of sidetracked Dion from, which is part of what's going on in Stephen King's career is that these movies are being, his books are being optioned, and he's having no success as a screenwriter. 
Yeah. He wants to adapt. He wants to be the one to adapt his movies for the screen. They do Cujo. And, they do... Uh, but Cujo comes after this. Oh, is it after this? But The Shining. Uh, Shining. He wrote a script for The Shining that didn't get made and uh, that they didn't use his script for. And so Stephen King really wants to be the screenwriter. So they're going to do the stand. He might have even written the... There's a. It was a big event when it came out. There's an audio edition of The Mist that was like stereophonic. I remember mm-hmm. the big idea was... It's like a radio play. Yeah, and you listen to it like on your high-fidelity surround, uh, you know, f- record or whatever it is. And I remember he might have done that. And that was big when that came out like 19... Like the late 70s or 80s, yeah. you know. But uh, you're right. He, he's, he's trying to break in to be the person who's adapted. And he had shit. written... Uh, we just talked about uh, Ray Bradbury... Yeah, he did uh, something. Wick, something wicked this way comes. Yeah, he had written a version of that, yeah. and that was like one of the first things of screenplays he had written. And, and he writes Dance Macabre around this time, which is all about is the process and the thesis of history of horror. And so, uh, but here's but here's the problem: yeah. is the stand, you know, is a huge budget yeah. endeavor. It's like and a I think thousand it, pages. And I think at this point, his script is like two feature films. Because you can remember too, yeah, what you're saying is they're looking at optioning and adapting the stand to make it to be a feature film, not down the line. They never thought about having it be a TV miniseries, no. which it ends up being. Which is produced by Richard Rubenstein. So apparently get, Richard Rubenstein held on to the rights yeah, all that time. Because they ended up, that became a thing in the late 80s was Stephen King, the big stuff was being adapted. So you get the, you get it, Langoliers, that's a short story, but you get a lot. We talked about sometimes yeah, but, they come back. But Rubenstein ends up producing, I think he produces Pet Cemetery, Sure. For feature. Feature film. But then he does the Langoliers, yep. the stand. He produces Thinner. Thinner. And the Night Flyer. Yeah, we talked about Randy Jurgensen having a part in working the th- out the thinner upstate but uh, my point is that I guess you know you look at the stand ends up being I think like a three night like it it's yeah, a three yeah. night two hours so that's what six hours you can yeah. you have the little room to stretch your legs and like you have now with these ser- streaming shows but at this time they're thinking of trying to pack it into a two hour movie yeah. or and t- Romero has had success but all of the movies he's had success with have been pretty small movies in terms of budget so they're like there's no way somebody's going to give us the budget required to make this movie. Yeah. So Stephen King says, well, what if we make, not so much a proof of concept because that has nothing to do with Stan, but let's do a movie yeah. that's an original movie. That's a good idea. Not based on one of my works. That's a really good idea, Stephen. We'll work together. Okay. We'll do it for low budget. Oh, I love it. And when it's a huge success, yeah. we can use that as kind of our calling card to say like, this movie we made it on this budget, and look how much money movie. How make, look how much money it made. Now, why don't you give us X amount of dollars to make the stand? Bob's your uncle, and Fanny's your aunt. You're able to do that, and I think for me, uh, the Creep Show ends up being the high point in his career, where it is. I think it's the most Hollywood. Yeah, with all the casts and all that, and I well, would he think ends it would up actually going and doing a couple of studio pictures which was a very bad experience for him same way with carpenter some of the, the some of them what did he do during the 80s until well, I'm, before the dark half well i mean he did day of the day oh, yeah, i'm sorry duh yeah but, but that was part of this three picture deal yeah. so that was still kind of outside of hollywood quotes yeah. and that was in, very controversial when that came out um, but I'm Monkey Shines. Yeah. That might have been late '80s. I think Monkey Shines and, and then Dark he's doing Half are the first times he's probably doing like tales from the. Uh, you well, know, he's doing TV stuff. Well, Twilight Richard Rubenstein does. He produces uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Tales from the Dark Side, the TV show, the television show, and then also the movie. Okay, um, and which is directed by John Harrison, 
who was involved in this movie, yeah. and we'll talk about him uh, when when the time comes. Uh, and then and I believe Romero is on as like an, as in name for Tales from the Dark Side, the television show. Yeah, give it a little street cred. Yeah, and then, and then he's like billed maybe as an executive producer. Um, and an executive producer in a television is usually like the person in charge, sure. but I think it's more like in a presents, like yeah. George Romero's. And I feel like he did like a Twilight, the re- you know, the 80s Twilight Zone. Maybe he was. A in- lot of them did. Yeah. A lot of the, the horror guys did. So I wouldn't be surprised. And it, even some of the non-horror and guys. And then around this time, you know, Cat's Eye ends up coming out, which we'll talk about in a little while, which is, I think Stephen King wrote that as well. Ends yeah. up doing, you know. But Romero doesn't have yeah, yeah, to do yeah. that. But, uh. But, so they come up with an idea doing something on their own. Yeah, and Stephen King's like, well, why don't we do like an anthology, a bunch of sh- like shorter stories? And Romero's like, that's awesome. And we could do like, which is an idea that you and I have discussed, which is like we'll do an anthology movie where every story is like a different style of horror movie. Yeah. Or like a different decade. Because when we grow up, movie. we want to be filmmakers. <laughs> and we're trying to be filmmakers. So this is... This is the this podcast is hopefully getting us there to be able to write, direct, and act in a movie. So these are the dreams Blake and I still and have. So we've always and we still do discuss making movies. We and always one do. Of, and, we're and, always just writing these notes down. Like an you know, anthology. We're not talking about movies like this. <laughs> we're talking about ideas of trying to break us into the industry, or discussing scripts that we're working on. Yeah. Um, and so anthology movies have always been something that Dia and I ha- and I have discussed because we've always had a fondness for them. Sure. And so Romero's idea is like we could do like a black and white, like, like you know, universal. Yeah. And then we'll do one in super widescreen. Yeah. And then we'll do one three D. Yeah. And really uh, going through like paying like uh, like a love letter to all the different like the eras, eras of horror movies, <laughs> uh, which is a great idea in, in concept. You know, that's a. And Stephen King's like, that's cool, George, but <laughs> what you and I both grew up with EC Comics and a fondness of EC Comics. Why don't we do something that's more in the style of Tales from the Crypt or Vault of Horror? He's like, I just wrote Dance Macabre and I just researched the shit out of all this and I have all this right here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, George is like, okay, that yeah. sounds like a good idea. That's a good point. So then comes the pr- the 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 process of trying to figure out how they're going to make it. Yeah. So this is like 79, this idea happens. So Richard Rubenstein's like, that's great, Steve. Uh, what's it going to be called? Next day, George, uh, Stephen King comes down. He's like, we're going to call it Creep Show. Great, Steve. How long is it going to take you to write a script? Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> He's like, Steve's like, eh. Pulls up his paper yeah, and a pencil. It's going to take me X amount of hours a day. Carry the. It's going to take me 60 days. Yeah. So apparently, 60 days to the day, Steve, uh, uh, Stephen King delivers the first draft of the script. Which is, I mean, he, I, it which was, I think is 145 pages yeah. long, something to that effect, which is long yeah. for a feature length script. Usually 90 to 120 pages is, is the average script. They 90 say minutes typically a, a page a minute. Yeah, so that's either 90 minutes or uh, two hours. And he gives a, what? He gives like a two hour and 20 minute. Yeah. Uh, so they say, okay, now we got to figure out how we're going to make this. So they get the script. Uh, they come up with a budget, yep. rough budget. Uh, a family friend of the Rubenstein, f- uh, of the Rubenstein family, Dr- Richard Rubenstein, whose brother uh, is the guy who actually scored Martin and goes on and, Martin, and Night Riders, and then the later uh, Romero film Bruiser, and also wrote the theme song to Tales from the Dark Side. Donald, I believe, is his name. Uh, 
Family friend of the Rubensteins is Jack Kamen. Okay. Who is an EC artist that we talked a lot about last yeah. episode. And I made mention to, about him doing the, because I knew what we were going to do next <laughs> week. I said he ended up doing all the uh, the wraparound art for the movie. And the poster, right? the, the original drawing poster. And he creates the poster. Yeah. So Rubenstein and Romero pack up the car yep. with, <laughs> in May. With, with the script, the budget, and this poster that Jack Kamen uh, made. They get into and they the, go uh, to Hollywood. They, they get into the station wagon. They put like you know George George is probably driving. Stephen King's probably in the back facing <laughs> the out the wrong way in that seat. drinking a beer, drinking a beer, and drink, well, he might not have been drinking by that point because he, I think he after Cujo, that's what Cobby talks about his problems. But anyway, and they they go to Hollywood to pitch, and uh, apparently they meet with everybody. Everybody wants to hear the pitch. But the problem is, everybody wants to change what they want to do. Why, that, why is Hollywood always like that? I mean, you know, you always hear they always want to change it never ends up doing well. Yeah. You never hear, like, they changed it, it was great. You know, I mean, I guess you do sometimes. But it's always these horror stories where That's because they you, have these established guys. Well, it's also, it's also probably because, like, the studios don't talk. Yeah. You know, so... Some filmmaker is not going to be like, they changed my shit and they made it better. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to talk about it. Filmmakers are going to say, they changed my shit and they made it worse. Yeah. If it's and great, my name's on it. If, they're gonna, if it's great, they're going to take Look credit for it. Look what I did. Yeah. So they always want, they want to change stuff here. So they can't find the, the money they want for it because they don't want to lose creative control. So they go to UFD, UFD, <laughs> <UFC>? United, <laughs> United Film Distribution, uh, distributors who's, they have a three-picture deal with. And they said, look, this isn't part of the three-picture deal. Sucker. <laughs> but will you give us money for the film? So uh, United Film Distribution, they say, we'll give you $8 million for the movie if we can find someone else to distribute it. And that ends up being the budget, $8 million. Yeah. And then, yeah, they need to find a distributor. So they end up, this is something that you see happening common today, I believe. And it eventually gets distributed by, and it's the first... Romero film to be distributed by one of the major studios. It gets distributed by Warner. Warner Brothers. Um, and this is what you see a lot today, isn't it? Where they make they make the yeah. Like well, a, now there's like eight yeah. million. You know, Blumhouse is making it with this. you know Atomic Robot. With well, you know, that's person, I, that admit, thing, I long for the days. Distributed by Universal. It's a half hour at the beginning, just seeing how many people are in part of this, and you're like, is that a movie yet? With these little feature? Oh, these are just the people part of it, and then like you that's know, the way, because now then it's like intermission before it's you high stakes. So everybody's like, if we all put in a little bit of money, we'll none of us right. are going to none of us are going to stand to lose yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, only the big guys still get the one. And the way Laurel Entertainment was working back then, it's kind of genius and probably a lot like what a lot of these companies work with like now, which is Laurel Entertainment, George Romero and Richard Rubis is like, we'll put up money for like development. Yeah. We'll pay, we'll pay for the script. We'll pay for some production design. We'll get it like all ready to shoot. And, uh, and, and like a package deal to, sh to, to show people. Like, yeah. Oh, so you got a portfolio. So that like... You will have it all ready so that, like, tomorrow, if someone's like, here's the money, start shooting tomorrow, we can start shooting tomorrow. Yeah. But we can't afford to finance the entire movie. So what they do is we do we put up all the money here, and then when we get the deal, we've already recouped our expenses. Yeah. Like, part of the deal is that, like, we're in the – we've already made money. Yeah. Like, we're successful just yeah. by, by value of having somebody come on and, and make the – Thing. And that Ooh, way, uh, if it makes more money in the box office, great, we make more money. But we're already, you know, making profit here, which is a brilliant way to work. So they get the money, and uh, by Jul July of 81, I think is when they start principal photography. 
on on uh, Creep Show. On Creep Show. And it's amazing how they get um, the people they end up getting for this son of a bitch. You know, I mean, it is it is kind of for what they're doing. It's kind of well, it's amazing. Biggest, everybody signs on. It's the biggest budget they ever had. Yeah. So now they they have the ability to work not not have to work on location. Yeah. So they ended up taking over a high school called like Penn Hall Academy. It's an old women's school that's not being used outside. Of, they film, I guess, ninety percent of it out in and outside of Pittsburgh, where Romero, which I didn't know until doing research of him, is uh, New York born and raised. But then yeah. he went to college in Pittsburgh, fell in love. College. He he fell in love with the Pittsburgh area, and then didn't he end up living there? Yeah. Well, he got a college. He started. He he uh, created a very successful. A production company that would do commercials, right? They or? did commercials and industrials, yeah. And you can find some of them. And uh, somebody, but they did a Romero retrospective recently, I think at BAM, and that's when I went to go see Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, which is where I went to go see Dawn of the Dead in 3D was part of that. Okay, but they had a day of just like screening of his all his other. Yeah, his little- there's also a very famous and ASPN did uh, like one of their docu series, little docu, yeah, it's like a short docu thing where. Um, at some point there was a historic, I'm not a football guy, so forgive me, I'm but there was either. historic, I love the uh, the Houston Oilers. They're my team. There was a historic, uh, I'm going to say Super Bowl. Okay. With the, with Pittsburgh. Pirates. Steelers. Steelers. Pittsburgh Pirates Steelers. baseball. Yeah. Steelers. We're, and, we're in the same ball, you know, the, the same ballpark. Oh! <laughs> and, uh, there was like some amazing play catch or something and there's this footage that has been seen especially in pittsburgh it's infamous like not infamous it's famous for this shot and the 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 play and i I forgive me for not knowing the details i'm an idiot when it comes to sports i'm ignorant when it comes to sports you're ignorant but george romero shot that on location fucking shot at the game oh he was like he was a camera guy at the (laughs) game just doing and so there's this espn little documentary where it's like they're showing george romero the game and that shot and he's like with one of the fucking stealers of the time and they're he's like oh yeah and george romero was like the fucking guy that shot that that's weird because you look at our capacity i mean i work in television news as a day job and you know, that's a freelance camera guy. You just go get a gig. You know, you freelance at this well, George, place. Well, part and then, of what George Romero was doing was, as part of his production company, he got hired. Their big gig, the big fucking payday was sure, they, made, sport. they made all these sports documentaries, including one about Oh, OJ so he Simpson. wasn't shooting the game. He was just shooting footage. He might have been as part of you know, something. He might have been there shooting. Because I could like, see them. We need somebody at the Super Bowl. Yeah, I could see them like. Or shooting in Pittsburgh or Getting whatever. money by going and covering the game, you know. Or whatever the game was. Sure, especially back then, you know, it wasn't as crazy it is today, you know. So he he shoots this this famous shot. Yes. And, yeah, that's my recollection yeah. of watching the little documentary. Uh, when we were talking about this, because so he was a transplant to Pittsburgh, so he, he then but settles he in Pittsburgh. But he created this company and then. Then that's how he meets uh, John Harrison, who yeah. we're going to talk about a little bit later, who becomes uh, a composer and then a filmmaker, a director in his own right. He's made some great movies. Uh, and he's working currently on the Creepshow television series for uh, Shudder. Um, Pat Booba, who becomes the editor. Yeah, Pasquale Booba. It's hilarious because I've known him all my life because he's the famous editor on my most favorite Twilight, uh, Tales from the Crypt episode, the uh, Television of Terror. So I always see his name come up, and I think of Pasquale Baia, yeah. my dad. 
but it's Pat Booba. So I'm like, I oh, they misspelled Baya. <laughs> so I, I've always seen his name pop up. Yeah, you he, know, and he, he's he was John Harrison, and and Pat Booba had a company. Yeah, that wasn't doing much. He's, he's an editor, he, but he was a filmmaker. Yeah. But he ends up becoming Romero's editor, and for he a just lot died like a year or two ago. Recently, yeah. And his mom's house is the house in Martin. Oh wow, the one they use. Because yeah. they shoot Night of the Living Dead in and around Pittsburgh. Uh, what's the name of the uh, the place where they shoot Evan Night of the Living City. Evan City. And then they shoot Martin in and around Pittsburgh. Then they shoot Dawn of the Dead at in the Monroeville. Monroeville Mall. And then he shoots that other movie, the comedy, Vanilla. Doesn't he shoot that around there? And the, yeah. The They're crazies all, you know, as well. Everything's crazes, all. Everything's you know, in like Evan City yeah, and so Monroeville. When they get the idea is, hey, let's go back to where we know. So they, they get, they find this women's, this girl's Abandoned. School, yeah. High it's school. not being used. And they take it over. And like we said before with that. Much like Evil Dead 2. Yeah, Evil Dead 2. And I brought up that other movie that I call Avalanche, but it's actually called High, High Something. But they shoot in Colorado. They take over a high school gymnasium. And that's the thing at the time, Evil Dead 2 did it. And they basically, in this women's school for Creepshow, they shoot everything. They make all the sets in the, in, the, in the auditorium, in the gym. And then they use, like, the locker room. Savini sets up his shop for the Creature Feature shop. It becomes like a little Yeah, and they studio. use classrooms for, for offices. Yeah, and, and then they, you know, are dressing rooms. And they shoot in hallways for, like, the crate sequence and all that, you know. And, and then they shoot. And they shoot certain things on location. Yeah. Um, and then the biggest one is they go to New Jersey uh, down by uh, Tom's River and they shoot the whole sequence with. Um, Something to tie you over. Yeah. So. Um, and like Father's Day is shot at, at like a mansion in the Pittsburgh area. Yeah. Some rich guy who imported yeah. wigs. Yeah. With like some kind of wig. Wig guy. So, yeah. So that. So it ends up being, I think, for and what Car- they shoot some of the crate at Carnegie Mellon, which is where Romero went to college yeah. in the Pittsburgh area. So I think it, it, they end up using the money pretty well because they they know what they're doing they go in with it and like because they're even though it's a higher big budget movie I think they talk about how they're still coming at it like we would when we were in film school like very like you know low budget like like guerrilla filmmaking so they're still making decisions and doing the things the way they would do it that way and I think that's what keeps them maybe but they get to shoot in a a controlled semi-controlled environment apparently it was not very well soundproofed so they'd have to stop takes because of planes and whatnot yeah but it's for the first time they're, they're shooting on sets not in a fucking farmhouse. Yeah, they're making yeah, and so, yeah, or in the mall or overnights while yeah. the mall's closed. Yeah, they actually have they have the 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 creative control to erect sets and then you know shoot in them. And to where you were going, they have the money to now hire the big names, bigger names, people that aren't necessarily Pittsburgh natives that are friends with Romero. <laughs> yeah, and they get some pretty big. I mean, you know, for the era and now it's it's a man. They get. Huge names, and I would say for the most part, everybody who they get uh, clock in amazing performances. They really, none of them, you know, really, they, they get into the, the performance, the portrayal. They're not in any way, like, hamming it up. Yeah. For the, you know, and I, and I think everybody really puts in a stellar job, uh, does a stellar job well, doing everything. I mean, everything. some of the perform. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, it's, it's the style of the movie warrants a little hammock sure you know it's but a, you're t- but they're taking it seriously and and then they're in there but like adrian barbeau's character is very over the top sure. but it works and and of course stephen king's 
character yes. is, is yeah. very but it, but, it, but it works but it's within the style of the movie yeah. so it works yeah so it's not out of place yeah so they end up getting people like uh, uh, E.G. Marshall Leslie Nielsen E.G. Marshall was coming off of Superman 2 yeah we just did two weeks for a, a month ago maybe we did Superman 2 who he plays the president in uh, so he, we just talked about him they get Fritz Weaver they get Adrian Barbeau you brought up they get Hal Holbrook they get uh uh, a whole Ted Danson's in there. Yeah, Stephen Ted King. Danson's just pre Cheers. Uh, yeah, Hal Holbrook obviously was. Uh, you know, he had uh, by that, that time had been doing the Mark Twain stuff, and uh, which I've seen is amazing. His live one man show, and he was a star. And he, uh, uh, Adrian Barbeau, had by that point done the. Fog. She was married to Carpenter, coming off a of Maud, and uh, Swamp Thing was comes out that year too. And apparently, she gets offered. Uh, Creep show, and Adrian Bar- Bar- Go- Barbo goes to Adrienne. Adrienne, it's not Adrian. It's yeah, Adrienne, <laughs> and who's the happens to be the mother of a friend of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, Cody Carpenter. Cool, little Cody Carpenter. Little Cody Carpenter. Yeah, uh, and uh, he's like, I don't know. Uh, should I? George Romero wants me to make a movie, and and then John- I think she read the script, and she's like, This is a really weird part for me because she says, I yeah, don't yeah. drink. Yeah, yeah, I've never been drunk in my life, she says. I mean, she's, I don't, no disrespect to Cody, but I mean, at her age now, she still looks gorgeous, mm-hmm. you know, so that's probably maybe because of the clean living, I guess, <laughs> I would think, you know, but she she looks amazing for her age now, yeah, you, you yeah. know, so she and, said at the time. But Carpenter's like, who's George Romero? Yeah, do it. You, you have, have to do it. Yeah, it's you fucking know, George Romero. You know, and like you said, Hal Holbrook is doing tons of 70s stuff. He's huge. Fritz Weaver is huge. A lot of these people, Vivica... Uh, Lynn Ford's. It's like everybody. You got Twilight Zone alumni in here, and all this. Uh, Leslie Nielsen's doing episodic television at the time. Well, uh, John. We'll, we'll go some of the list from from Father's Day. John Lorimer. Yep. Um, he was a you know better television actor. He was in Star Trek: The Cage, the original pilot for yep. Star Trek. Yeah. Which then becomes the uh, the Menagerie when yeah. they kind of do that two parter. Later on, with uh, uh, what's his face, right? When what's his name comes back, uh, Pike. Pike comes back. Uh, like you said, uh, Vivica Linfors. She had been in the Adventures of Don Juan with Errol Flynn, but then she was in <sighs> huge every movie. television yeah. show and uh, tons of movies. And, and she then, she was gorgeous then when she's w- with freaking Errol Flynn. And then you think about she ends up dying. I think in the nineties, or, or well, she goes on to some sleepover classics. She's in The Exorcist Three, yeah, and Stargate, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's was, that's the point I wanted to break up is that she's the woman in Stargate that hires them and finances that journey. But she's gorgeous in this movie, and she's got to be like in her early sixties. And I think she's yeah, looks, I think she's, she's you know hot as you know balls. Like exactly. <laughs> Gee, that's not politically correct, but I would too. Um, so Terry, she, Terry Nye like, was a was a was a stage actress, and she's also in Father's Day. And she was married to Dick Cavett. Yeah, uh, and everybody knows Dick Cavett. Hopefully, Ed Harris is 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 blowing up. He's in coma. I think he's got a bit part as an orderly in coma. Yeah, he had and just been in Night Riders. He was just in Night Riders with also our friend Tom Savini, who's uh, in Night Riders, and we'll talk about Savini. But also, he has a cameo as a garbage man in here. You got Tom Atkins at the beginning of yeah, this. He was a Pittsburgh guy, and but he was actually at that point in California, and he was had done. Oh, is he from Pittsburgh? Yeah. Okay. And I think he lives there now. I yeah. Think he had, after like sometime after like Lethal Weapon or just before Lethal Weapon, he moved back to oh, Pittsburgh. Why not? If you got the means, why not? And like we always like and to if, say, every if you if you doubt yourself, 
Tom Atkins always proves that any man is leading man material. Yeah, yeah. God bless uh, but him. But at that point, he had probably done Escape from New York and The Fog, yeah. which also had Adrian. And Robert. his first role is, uh, we just brought up from when we did Bullet last year, is the Frank Sinatra movie. Uh, oh, Christ, which is the, the sequel to that is the movie that ends up turned, the author ends up making Die Hard. Yeah. It's, it's uh, what the name is that? God damn it, that Frank Sinatra movie that I love, The the Detective. That's the name of that movie, from 68. He's, that's his first role. So he's doing episodic stuff during the 70s. Uh, we talked about Ed Harris, Stephen King. Uh, this is his second, this is probably his first substantial role. Yeah. And he didn't even want to do it. I think it was George Romero was like, you know. And apparently Tom Atkins wanted to do that part. Yeah, he said, I can do that. And they're like, no, we already cast him. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen King. Like, but okay. Fritz Weaver had been, by that point, had been in Marathon Man, Black Sunday. Yeah, he's he's a big, he has one of the um, one of the quintessential Twilight Zone episodes, which is like Third from the Sun, which might also be a Ray Bradbury. or No, it's either Ray Bradbury or Rod Serling written. Uh, Twilight Zone, but that's a very famous one where they, you remember that, where they escape, they've got to get off the earth because, you know, they're about to be atomic war and he's a scientist and he gets his friend and his family and they get into the rocket at night and they creep in and they get out yeah. and they get off in the rocket and it's okay and then they're flying away and then, you know, the planet blows up or whatever and then, you know, at the end they're like, um, you know, we're going to a planet and it's it's much like ours and don't worry and then they're like, which one is it? And they point out, and they're like, it's the third from the sun, they call it earth. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's the end of it. You know, but it's a very famous Twilight Zone episode, maybe called Third from the Left. And, of course, E.G. Marshall, like we said, was the president of Superman movies, but also had uh, been in Twelve Fuck Angry Men. Uh, uh, a whole bunch of character actor work in the, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and a lot of um, live action, like Studio One or, or Playhouse 90, those uh, live... 50s episode of uh, TV movies sure, yeah. and anthology movies that they did. So this is the by far the biggest budget yeah. of George Romero's career up to that point. Blinko, Bingo O'Malley uh, we have. Uh, we said Le- Leslie Nielsen. Uh, Ned Beatty's oh, in yeah, here. Leslie Nielsen. How can we forget Leslie Nielsen? We're going to get to Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> um, we have Ned Beatty, who was just in Superman 2 for a month ago. He's unaccredited as a voice on the yeah, phone at the I, end. There's some couple of uncredited things that yeah. are on Wikipedia that I can't find mentioned anywhere else. They talk about Richard Gere on the TV, but I think that's just... Maybe there's a movie on Richard Gere, so I can't count him, but I, if... I couldn't tell who they're saying Ned Beatty is. He's having a phone conversation. He's one of the guys that yeah. calls E.G. Marshall. Um, and then is is there anybody else that's a bit part? Maybe not. Well, I mean, like John Ambles, who played Martin. Yes, they, Martin. He plays. He's under the makeup for so at, at the, at the zombie creature and uh, so they they Father's Day. Our point is they assemble a pretty impressive uh, um, uh, cadre uh, troupe of actors to to really fill in the roles of this anthology. And they end up writing, I guess, King adapts, I think, two of his own original stories, shorts. Yeah, it's interesting. It was very hard for me to find anything about the actual writing of it until... Uh, Processes. Until props to my, my buddy Steven Altabello, who, oh. who I went to see Creep Show with. Yep. He uh, was nice enough to send me a copy of the Cinefantastique magazine. Yes. Which, for uh, people who are in the know, is the one that has... Savini, Romero, and and uh, King all on it from like you know eighty one or eighty two, you know. So he he sent it over as uh, some research. So So finally, yeah, Blake Blake sat down. (laughs) I didn't do it. I read the Black Hole issue when they did the Black Hole, but Blake sat down and wrote, wrote. And we did that for Batman the Animated Series. We read the Cinnamon Fantastic. Yeah, but Blake read that. 20 page issue of cinema, you know, story of cinema. That one story for the creep show. So, uh, 
interesting because I was, I was like, okay, like it's great to talk to Stephen King about Creepshow and how Creepshow came to be and about playing Jordy Verrill or whatever. But uh, I would like to know a little bit about the writing of it. And there's still not a whole lot. But Yeah. <clears throat> what you come up with? A couple of interesting. So Father's Day, he is the, he's talking about all the stories. Yeah. Father's Day, uh, he wrote because he wanted to write something that was like quintessentially easy. Do you think we need to talk about... I mean, there's rapper. It starts off and it's just a kid. And well, we'll get to the rapper on because that actually comes after he writes all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think we need to set up the movie at all? Or I don't just, think so. Okay, people who are listening by this point know what the heck's going on. It's a little kid on. who's played by Stephen King's son. Yeah, who's now a famous author in his own right. Joe yeah. Hill, I believe, is his author name. Okay, and it's and yeah, Tom Atkins plays his dad, who's a bit of a jerk and uh, doesn't want him reading comics, which is very much like the fifties. You know, you're, why you're reading this smut. You and know, EC com, you know the fifties EC comics. Romero style. goes all on to say that like that reminded him a lot of his own child. Not that his dad maybe hit him because he read comics, but he wasn't allowed to read them, so he'd have to sneak them into the house. Sure. Um, and then the kids like you know, and the dad throws the comic away, and the kids like, I'm going to get revenge on you. And then the kids dreaming and looks and out the, the window, sees a <coughs> sees like a pseudo a pseudo crypt keeper, creeper. And then that starts the credits, and this enters this anthology of stories that was in the comic book the kid was reading. And the first one is this Father's Day. Father's Day. So Stephen King wanted to write something that was like quintessentially easy comics, which was like one of those just desserts. Yeah. Zombie out of the grave. <laughs> he wanted to have, and he said he doesn't, didn't normally write this way, but he's like, okay, somebody needs to come out of a grave in this story. And uh, so he wrote the entire thing around this idea of like somebody coming out, somebody's yeah. coming out of the grave. And, uh, Immediately, right there, that is, you're right, so EC Comics, so much the idea of the, and we were talking just last week about the imaging the artists would draw, and that is so much the zombie coming out of the, not not just a graveyard grave, but like yeah. maybe they're they're killed like and buried. The house plot or yeah, whatever. or they're coming, you know, they're buried in the basement and they're coming back to get revenge on the boyfriend or whoever did it to them. And then that, that look of them coming out with the stuff on them and them rotting is so EC. And then what I wanted to stop down for a second is like, I'm so fascinated. One of the reasons why I read his Dance Macabre, and then he did recently, there's a book, a short stories book, but then he also, it's him, his um, uh, points on writing. His, he gives tips. Yeah. I'm always... On, I think it's called On Writing. Is it really? Okay. I thought it was included in something else because I remember... You know, well, I know he has a book called Stephen King On yeah. Writing. And, uh, but I'm so fascinated with the process for anybody, you know, going even back to like... Uh, talking about what's her face who wrote J.K. Rowling or just like or even what's his face George R.R. R. Martin like how the hell or even we talk about Lucas like you know how are you coming up with this how do you get from A to B because you and I both write you know it's like you know how do you fulfill a fictional story how do you you know so all this stuff I love the idea like you're saying his impetus is I want to have a zombie coming out of a grave because that's so easy comics. How do I fill a story out around that? That is a just desserts yeah. kind of a thing. So that's just fascinating, you know. And, and, then, see, then he, fills and it he says in. that like that's not usually how he tackles a project, but that's how he needed to tackle this story yeah. to get it out. And it was okay. So why is he coming out of the grave? And then it becomes exactly like, okay, see, it becomes like a, it comes to the class. And you know how do you have the ending first? Do you have the middle? Do you have the beginning? Just write whatever. And then so he, he writes this one. And uh, so The Lonesome Death of Jordy Vero, which is the second story, is based on a short story called Weeds. Now, this was going to be maybe the third story. When, when he submitted that long script, supposedly, uh, no, I'm thinking, no, this, Jody's the second story proper. They're going to switch the crate around in the tide. Yeah. Okay, so I'm sorry. Keep going. 
and so that was a short story that he had written that was published in May of 1976 in an issue of Cavalier. Yeah. Uh, the, now, the, the Stephen King starring one as well. Yeah. Jody, yeah. And so he, but he apparently had a, originally started it as the first chapter of a book that he had started even before Carrie. Uh, so he had started writing it in 70 or 71. And he said that that was, it was an idea he had. It was the first chapter was going to be a longer book. He said, but then when the weeds started to grow towards the town, he couldn't really find anything else to say about it. <laughs> he just felt like that was a good ending for yeah. it. So then he puts it away and it ends up becoming uh, a short story called Weeds and it gets put into, the, I'm, ge- I'm guessing, Cavaliers Magazine or a collection of short stories. And when they adapt it, they they amp up the comedy aspect of it for the movie. And if we don't hit, uh, since we're here, if we don't hit it on again, if, if at the very end of that, when you see them going towards the city, when they have that signpost, you see what is a Castle Rock, which is his fictional town, which shows up in Needful Things, mm-hmm. which is also Ed Harris um, down the line. And, um, you know, so you see it's taking place in Maine because it has, like, you know, Portland or whatever, where Bangor, I, I forget what signs are on there. Yeah. Uh, but so Castle Rock, of course, is a television or a show on Hulu now. Oh, is it? Is it also, is it Stephen King? I don't know how much be, right? he's involved, but it's an homage to him. him. Yeah. So there's all these... Stephen King uh, references, references and, and stuff. Uh, so he then his second story is he does it a bit, hams up a comedy, like does a little the yeah. silly, which is also very easy comics. The bumbling guy, the ignorant f- farmer, you know, you know, un, you know, probably never went to school because <laughs> he had to work on the farm all those years, you know, yeah. uh, and you know, and. It was Romero who was just like, no, you can be broader. You can, you know, really play that. What he, he said his only direction he gave to Stephen King is he's like, you know, be like Wiley Coyote from the Roadrunner series. And he's like, okay. And you know. so this comes very cartoonish. Yeah. A little bit of tid, tidbit of trivia. Apparently as a, a good luck charm uh, while he was making it, Stephen King had a little Greedo figure from Star Wars in his pocket. Nice. <laughs> Has a little good luck charm. Little l- l- lucky rabbit's foot. He just he just take it and just <laughs> a little, little Greedo. Yeah, I call him Greedo. Guido. <laughs> and uh, apparently that one was very frustrating for Tom Savini because that was one of the only stories where a lot of the they kept on running the problems where some of the effects weren't working properly. Yeah, and he wanted to. He was so you know he was Stephen King was such a big guy. He wanted to impress Stephen King, and then Stephen King had the worst. Like he couldn't. They couldn't take a. Um, if I also read, I dug out my old copy of Grand Illusions, a learn-by-example guide to the art and technique of special makeup effects from the films of Tom <laughs> Savini. Mm-hmm. And they go in order, and that's really just like a how-to. We And he gives you like, you know, you take 1-8 plaster scene, you add water, and you take color, food coloring, you make a mold. Like, it really shows you how to do everything yeah, with yeah. beautiful uh, pictures. Photographs. Like someone, yeah. yeah, someone, they, they got a local artist to render... Uh, draw the behind the scenes so you see the the uh, the trick of the shot or whatever they're doing yeah. for some of the stuff. But there's also a ton of great just photos of Savidian action. Yeah, doing stuff. And they talk about how uh, he had such a problem trying to cast Stephen. There's some people who can't deal with getting their face cast to do a mold. E.G. Marshall, who's this guy, like we said, who's this pristine, like legendary actor, comes and he's fine because he does so much stuff. He's like, all right, you know, come on. They, they, they can do him all right. He, uh, Savini talked about in here Farley Granger, who's also a very legendary actor who goes back to uh, Hitchcock, Strangers on a Train, and he's also maybe the... He's in another movie back then, but he's all, he's in The Prowler, and they said when he trying to do his face, he was like he was crying or he was freaking out, you know? And this is what happened with Stephen King. They had to like rip it off. They couldn't take a cast of him. Yeah. The appliances they were trying to put on him, 
either wouldn't stick on, wouldn't work, or he had an allergic reaction. Yeah, yeah they also had green contact lenses that, that they were fitted, fitted to his eyes, but he, his eyes he, were so sensitive they couldn't get him in. To yeah, because he couldn't hold it because he's blinking so much, and you know, and he's so they couldn't even get the freaking things in his eyes at the time. So they had a lot of problems. But and, we can get to him, and also a little bit of tid, tidbit of trivia. Since I don't know how much we'll come back to some of these things. Is that they end up building the Jordy uh, Verrill. They look for a, they look for a farm, and they can't find one that <laughs> yeah. that fits. So they end up building like an old farmhouse and three sides of a barn and stuff on this like hill. Yeah, and they they you know they put the old. If you look, there's a couple old cars there that are on like you know that look like they're dead and rotting, and so it they really make, looks like a like, like a depression era. This has been like bowl, uh, you know a farm that's been handed down to him from generations of his family. Yeah, so they put it on this hill, and apparently <laughs> it was in a flight path. <laughs> That the pilots would always at this local airport. Yeah, so the pilots will use like this hill and things of topography to get like, a frame of reference <laughs> of where they are. Of where they are, and all of a sudden these pilots are going over and they see this old farm. <laughs> they're coming over this mountain and they're seeing this farm, <laughs> and it's like, what the fuck? And everybody like, messed up all that up. because there's this farm that seems to have been here forever. And then this is happening for however long they're shooting, and then they said like, and then they strike everything. Yeah, and they, then the, the, they're coming over in a month and it's gone, and they're like, what the fuck is going on here? So they evidently heard from the local pilots that it was really messing them up to see this set there but it's it's an ingenious set because to me you know that doesn't that looks like they found a real farm to shoot on so um, Uh, that's the second story so something to tide you over now this is what I thought it turned into where originally in the script they they switched it the crate was going to be first something to tide you over was going to be next because I think in the graphic novel the novel the, the cartoonization the comic book adaptation of this is that's the I'm pretty sure that's the order in that hmm. because they're working off an earlier I wonder know, why they made that switch because uh, I think he was trying to cut back on time and then they were under the impression that maybe they wouldn't be able to get that fifth story in yeah, you know, well, that was the hard thing about the editing of it, which you know, I don't know if we'll get into it. Yeah, they had four different editors on each story. Di- one of which edited Star Wars, who did the Crate episode, and Pat Boba did... Uh, Pasquale Boba. Did the Jordy Verrill story. Romero, Romero himself. did tied, something tied, tied you, you over. over. And I forget who did the last yeah. one. He's not someone who did a whole lot of stuff, but he uh, he did... Uh, Michael Spolin did yeah. Father's Day and also uh, their... Creeping up on you. And Blake is a editor by day. We always talk about we're in the business. So Blake uh, has been an editor for Jesus. How many years you been editing? I don't know. Since two thousand one. Yeah, exactly. I, I went into television doing like audio, and you you went into editing. So for me, from I never looked at it. I never noticed enough that there was a difference between styles yeah. of editorially when you're looking at the editing. Well, or the, the stories f- themselves are different enough and the look is different enough and yeah. John Harrison's music is different But they enough. all tied it together, though, you know? But what happens is when you have five stories, yeah. if you say, like, well, we need to add more to this story to make it make sense, then you have to figure out where you're going to take the time out. I'm sure they had, like, the idea is that they're going to deliver a film that's no more than X amount of minutes long. So it becomes this thing that, like, if we add here, then where can we take out to kind of, like, level everything Sure. Out? So maybe it just became, like, a length thing, and then, like, they're like, well, what if we switch them? Then it has a better flow yeah. <laughs> with the length of each story, et cetera. So in, in the finished product, the third one is something to tide you over. Which is, of course, Ted Danson, who made an appearance on the show in what movie? <laughs> Captain America. No. Uh, Spider-Man. Spider- oh, he's in the... Sp- <laughs> when we t- not Captain America. The- we did the, ca- the 1990 
Captain America movie that never got released theatrically, but we also did the a big like a seventy Spider Man TV show. Yeah, we did we did an episode on Spider Man in uh, television, and we did we covered like a couple all his appearances up until then. And we talked about the character yeah. and Ted Danson had guessed it. I think he's also in an episode of Wonder Woman. He did he was doing a lot of stuff back then, uh, and uh, it was like you said just before he was getting Cheers, and he does this. Uh, we have Leslie Nielsen in here. We Le- can get to this later. Leslie Nielsen this- and Galen Ross, who was also the female lead in Dawn of the Dead. Oh, that is her. Look at that. And this is probably my favorite uh, of them all, but we can get to that. And they do this one. So this is another example of he wants to do something kind of definitely more in the style of EC, at just desserts, bad people getting their comeuppance. And kind of in both cases yeah in, in some way and this is also similar to a story he did called the the ledge i think the ledge so which comes out eventually in cat's in eye cat's eye with so, james woods maybe in that role no i don't think it's i think i think i could be wrong because i haven't seen cat's eye in forever but i think that james woods is in that movie. oh you're right he's a smoking episode he, it's the guy yeah. from airplane yes okay the lead in airplane yeah yeah so a, a fort, a, a with the guy from remember the show rock yeah He's one of the, Dutton. yeah. He's one of the tough guys that brings uh, um, the guy from airplane to see the mob boss. This is happening to, and the other guy is the dude that you met, Frenchie from Goodfellas, who I talked to on the train after I saw him in Black Dynamite. That you saw at Cabin Fever, mm-hmm. playing it's completely useless knowledge, but yeah. So those are the two heavies in that episode. Now what kind of funny is that the similarities to Ledge, which is a short story. Uh, that, like Dion said, was part of the Night Shift book that then gets put into Cat's Eye. When he did it, completely unintentional. Like, he wasn't like, I'm going to write something like The Ledge. Because in Cinema Fantastique, in the Cinema Fantastique magazine, the writer... What do you mean it's unintentional? That the similarities between Between The Ledge... and this story? Yeah, because the writer, the guy who's interviewing him in the Cinema Fantastique book says... You know, this is very similar to the ledge. Oh, I see. And he's like, oh, and he's like, oh shit, you're right. It is, isn't it? Because well, I wonder if he's, because yeah. in the original script, which isn't in the movie, uh, there's a seagull that comes down and starts like poking at Ted Danson, and there's also like these bloodthirsty crabs. Yeah, that come up, and so they couldn't figure out how to do the bird, so they cut that out. And apparently, the crabs they got were like really nasty, and so they were afraid they were really gonna mess up Ted Danson's face. Yeah, and they kicked him. Nuzzy <laughs> kicks him at one point. It's like, ah, oh, Jesus. So, uh, and there's a great set piece in the ledge, which is also in the Cat's Eye movie, which is it's about a guy who's in Atlantic City at the top of a building, who's the husband of uh, uh, wife's his wife's lover. The husband makes his wife's lover the husband's go like a around boss <laughs> go around the building on this tiny ledge. Yeah, because he's up in the he's out up like at, at the top of a building in a penthouse, and the mob boss, like I said, those two heavies bring him up, and he says in a scene, he's like, you know, you've been fucking my wife. Oh, you can live if, and he makes him go out on the ledge, and he makes him want to walk around the, the building. The entire they're like building. throwing things at him, and it's like a huge high rise. Yeah. yeah, on top of it, could be even be a, a casino in the penthouse. And he has to go around and come back, and then there's there's pigeons messing yeah, with him. You know, a, there's a like, who's, what's a pigeon going to do? There's you know? a particularly nasty pigeon that I remember starts like pecking at his. Yeah, ankle. and that's also 
uh, I think connected to the ledge is the scene with I was telling you I watched Cat's Eye for the first time in 30 years last year and they've got the cat in it that I think is the the connection between all the stories and yeah. I, I have to say I don't know if uh, the Animal uh, Welfare Society was uh, Animal Rights was on set because it looks like they killed a cat because they they got this little black cat running out in four lane traffic with uh, you know, like the barriers that have like grass in between out yeah. in the land. And this cat is between between the lanes and they got cars speeding. And the joke is the guy wants the cat to come towards him so it'll be hit by a car. So like, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And I was like, Jesus Christ, this poor fucking cat. Because they're using a real cat. It's the 80s. Yeah. So anyway, that's cat's eye in the ledge. But any, we digress. So. <laughs> we'll get that to the ledge. If you've seen something so the, tied you over, it's got some similarities. Yeah. There's a jealous husband. Yeah, and, we can uh, talk. We'll, we'll, go, we'll get back to it. And then the next one is The Crate. The Crate, which was a, a short story that first he first published in July of 79 uh, in, I guess, I'm guessing a magazine or a collection of short stories called Gallery. Yeah. Now, what inspired it was where he went to school, which was the University of Maine. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they were shutting down the chemistry department, so they were cleaning out the building. And so they uncovered all the stuff under the stairs. And they found this crate under the stairs that I guess had some kind of dating on it and had been under the stairs of this chemistry building for 100 years. Now, um, I remember him talking about maybe in Dance Macabre or somewhere that he was talking. There's in his night shift short, short stories, there's the one that's about graveyard shift. Or did they make a movie of that? They made a movie out of Graveyard Shift. And he talks about the inspiration was that. He was doing summer jobs at like a paper mill or some terrible, terrible mill that he was doing really hard labor. And, you know, one of the, this is, it was one of the reasons why he said, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I want to pursue writing. But he was doing like the night shift there or something. And he was saying how old this place was. And then at some point they were going to go down in the basement and have to, I guess, take the stuff out. And that was the thing where there was rats in the basement and it was, yeah. the stuff was there for a hundred years. And I just got done telling you that I've just received a book, uh, this Bible that is over a hundred years old that was just given to me literally yesterday from a family friend. And I was opening it up and this thing has got obituaries taped into it from the 1870s and a newspaper from 1898. So I was telling Blake, even though it's a Bible, it looks like the Necronomicon, and I was so scared opening it up. You know, I don't want to break anything, and you know, it's it's still well bound, but you know, I, I don't want to open some evil spirits or whatever <laughs> like that. But it's amazing to think of, like you're saying, he, you know, you find something that's been under the for a hundred years a box, and yeah. to be, someone just forgot or whatever the hell. So that's amazing. That's the you know. The, yeah, he said. Uh, he said there's probably there was probably nothing in it, but this idea that this is under the stairs and that for a hundred years, students were going up and down these stairs unknowing not knowing that there's this crate under there and, and if you so look the idea the story, was like well what if there was something evil something in the, bad in the crate and they were they were in danger the whole time it, but nobody knew and it. if you look at the story isn't they they're near the chemistry department right yeah yeah, yeah there's the, a lot of chemistry even though it's in the basement and it's under it's under a pair of stairs yeah yeah uh, and, so that's amazing and the monster itself which I think is named Fluffy yeah Stephen Tom King Savini, uh, so, Steve. I'm sorry uh, Romero named it but yeah they called it Fluffy yeah. Uh, that was inspired by the Tasmanian Devil from the Looney Tunes. Yeah, and I've always thought for years I couldn't figure out what the heck that thing is supposed to be, and they never really make mention. They talk about uh, we can get to all this, but they're talking about how, you know, how Stephen King, uh, uh, Tom Savini, you know, this was his tour de force up until, and he's so proud of that. But there's never any. Even if you look at the Grand Illusions book, when I was reading up on it, the, the only thing he said about it was it was just an alien-like creature. That, like you said, he it had to have a big enough nose and snout to come out to be able to eat people, to digest it. But then when you look at the, 
in the movie you can't really tell. So for years I thought the movie is just crouching. Yeah. But then when you look at it close up or or even shots it's of it, it's very short. It's very short. Yeah. It's got long arms with claws, a big old head. But then it's got a tiny body, little legs. Yeah, tiny little thing. You know, it kind of looks like me. I got a big old head, little body. But it's it's weird. I don't have a little body. But it's got it's weird. It almost looks like like um, not what do you call those uh, those little things that roll? Remember those movies? And they come up and they they're like uh, not tremors or ghoulies. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, can, I can't remember anything. But it's just weird. I would think it'd be because at that one point when it's pushing the crate back yeah. and you see its shadow, I thought it's, I thought, it, I, my point I'm getting to, it's from the Arctic. I thought it was a Yeti. Yeah. You know, some sort of uh, um, abominable snowman, which I think is awesome. I mean, it has to be something like that if it's coming from an Arctic expedition from 1834, I think it is, which gets us into like that show the terror on AMC, like all the shit that they were exploring back in the 1880s up yeah. north and trying to get a Northwest Passage over here. So it's just so amazing, this thing. And then this thing's been living in a crate for what a, over 100 whatever years. So that's the crate. And then... And the final story, they're creeping up on you, of course, is E.G. Marshall and the cockroach episode. Now, there wasn't a whole lot about this specific, the writing of this, other than that he's, in the original story, that he in, in the original version that he wrote, um, it's all kinds of insects and spiders. It's all like a lot of different kinds of, and so they're like, well, we don't think we can do that. Yeah. So they're worried that they're not going to be able to do it. So he starts writing a story as a replacement story that involves a hitchhiker. And we were talking about before we started rolling tape, Dion was talking about Creepshow 2. Um, from Grand Illusion, they talk about in the, one of the original concept writings for this story, it was just going to be a rich man's penthouse apartment at the top of a building in New York City, and it was going to be properly like just a rich carpeted whatever. But then they thought, like, wait a minute, it, functionality, if we're going to be shooting something like this with all these kind of bugs, insects, we can't have it be a regular set. So that's where they, I think they got the idea to have it more... Uh, hospital, anal, yeah, like Howard sterile. Hughes, sterile. He's he's a germaphobe, and that also lends itself to have it be white. You could see the bugs, and they're kind of almost caged off. Um, what Blake was alluding to was prior to this story, I'm talking about creep. Prior to this record, I was regaling how I love Creepshow Two, George Kennedy, all these people in Creepshow Two, and there's I think four stories in Creepshow Two, and I, maybe the last one is this one called The Hitchhiker. And this is a story that I guess, like you just said, he was maybe writing to put in just in case they couldn't do this yeah. bug one. They didn't think they could do the bug one. And then eventually they found someone that they're like, well, what if we change it all to just cockroaches? Then they found some guys that went down to Trinidad. Yeah, they got an ep- yeah. story. So uh, <clears throat> this, this hitchhiker epi- story that he writes ends up showing up in Creepshow 2, which I think is 1987, but it's, it's produced by Savini and uh, and uh, Stephen King, but I don't, and I think it's directed by somebody else, right? Yeah. It's not, yeah. Um, but I was saying to Blake is that it's, th- this is another thing where it's very familiar to me. There's a very famous uh, story called The Hitchhiker, maybe written for, again, we're always talking about radio, suspense radio, and one of the early quintessential uh, big suspense radio shows is they got Horson Wells when he was part of the Mercury Theater. And it's this episode about this woman who is seeing this hitchhike, and they, I think they then adapted it for the, it's the Twilight Zone episode, which you see, where this woman's driving out of New York City, Brooklyn, she crosses the Brooklyn Bridge, and she keeps seeing this guy trying to pick her up, hitch, and the different thing in the Stephen King thing is that he, she runs him down by accident, and then she leaves, it's a hit and run, and it becomes this guy, hey lady, thanks for the ride, lady, and he's trying to get her, and then it becomes this thing where he's chasing her because she's killed him, or in the or this original story, which I don't think he ever says is based 
his story is based on this. Yeah. It's just that this woman is seeing this hitchhiker every time, like every city she's seeing this, and she's like, how is this guy getting into a car and making it before me? And then, you know, go listen to the, I mean, we can even put a, a link to the, to the Orson Welles story as well as the Twilight Zone episode. Um, you know, but there's a big twist at the end of what happens there. Kings is different because it becomes a comeuppance. The yeah. woman gets scared, hit and run, and then this thing's chasing her. But then they don't end up needing it here because they end up figuring out a way of doing the bug thing. First, they were like, well, let's just make it four short stories. And I think, like, they get Savini together and they're like, no, let's just let's go for the goal. Go for, you know, we'll just try to do this. We've got some money left. And they, I think they even end up going over budget a little bit, but they're able to, yeah. you know, they're able to do it and get it in, in such a way where, because at the end of this, they had no money left from because this is the last story they shoot or whatever, and they're able to get it done and then have the end with the uh, epilogue at the end, which is the wraparound of the Tom Atkins story of the next morning, the garbage men finding the, taking the trash out. They find this comic book that this is all based on, and then we have a little comeuppance, yeah. you know. So now, apparently... Stephen King had and he had imagined it that there wouldn't be like a wraparound story. Well, it's you know it's weird because you don't have you kind of get a crib keeper at the beginning and it becomes a cartoon. Yeah, you know, and then I think in the comic book adaptation, the crib keeper person could even be talking to you and you see him like you know introducing the, the panels of the next story, but. You don't ever see the Crypt Keeper again. No, not to the end. You know, even well, though you... Not even really to the end. Yeah, you, you know, you don't even get the... I think you might see him in the last shot, right? Maybe yeah. when it goes out and he flies away or whatever. But you, it's interesting because this is something where I always loved how amazingly, you know, the, 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 the story will start or stop and the frame will either turn into a comic book or, or from the comic book turn into the frame. And then, you know, they have these depictions of the actors that look great. Uh, even to the point where I guess at the time people were like, is this based off a real comic book? Where can we get it? And they're like, no, no, no. We just got what's his face to draw Jack. I think Cayman yeah. to draw, and then he knew what shots, and then they just had the beginning or the whatever, whatever pages they needed. That was the comic book. But you never have the the the, the quote unquote crypt keeper through it. Yeah. So you don't have. You know, a guy so much like we had last week, where these people were having introductions and asking stuff, or from the tales from the crypt series. Sure. But like you're saying, he never even thought of having a. And it's funny. Book ended. The reason why he didn't, he didn't want it, because he didn't like the way they handled it in things like the Tales from the Crypt movie and Vault of Horror. He thought the beginning of Vault of Horror was really stupid. Yeah, where they're just like, what are we going to do? And <laughs> yeah, then they oh, walk we'll in. just sit down and yeah. we'll talk about, well, you know, this reminds me of a dream I used to have. Oh, well, this is weird. You know, very British. Like, yeah, we don't know what we're going to do, so let's just sit down and drink and talk <laughs> and do nothing. And, you know, so, so, so he's thought these and kind of... And the other one, like I said, in Tales from the Crypt the movie, I think at the time people could find it to be melodramatic or a little hammy. Yeah. Where now I look at it like I, I love the impact. It, I get it. But at the time, it's like, oh, no, that's... That could be corny, I guess. Yeah, so he just kind of felt like those kinds of things were his least favorite parts of those kinds of movies. And we haven't gotten yet, 10 years later, when they do the Tales from the Crypt show, where yeah. that, they, they, they make it work yeah. with John Kazir and all that. Yeah. So he's like, I don't think we need it. And Romero's like, I think we need something. And Romero's like, well, we're doing the comic book thing. What about we do something like this? And the kids got the comic book. And, Brilliant, right? And so King's like, yeah, okay. That's like, that works. That works. That works yeah, for yeah, me. that works. Yeah. Now they started. Apparently, they started filming before Stephen King was even finished the second draft of the script. That's how much they liked the first draft, 
And so Romero talks about how this was the first time he hadn't written the script, and so it was great to have the writer there so that when there was rewrites... He didn't have to sit there and do it for the next day. He could be Stephen King. You know, we need the right... Re- and he's re- like a hired gun to that aspect where he doesn't have to have that responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And He's adapting someone King, else's work. And King's there, like, living in Mor- Monroeville the whole That's time. Great. That's great. And in an apartment. And, uh... It looks like they shot the wraparounds in an actual suburban neighborhood because you look at the, uh... Of course, the filming, yeah. but you look at the behind-the-scenes shots where they just look like they're on somebody's street, even to the point with the end when the garbage truck comes, I think if it's the opening to Commando, <laughs> you got to see Bill Duke get out with that little Uzi and kill that guy off the block, you know? <laughs> you guys usually come on Thursdays, I thought. Wrong. <laughs> and that's the beginning of Commando. See, that's a fan mashup right there, the beginning of Commando. The garbage truck goes by. You know, hey, that could have been in Pittsburgh, right? It could have been. <laughs> you know, at the beginning. They're killing all your team. Sorry. And... uh so apparently Romero would say like, hey, what if we do this? And he would run ideas past Stephen King. And if, when Stephen King thought it was a good idea, then the rewrites would happen. And if Stephen King didn't like the idea, then the rewrites wouldn't happen. So they started filming it that way. And, of co- and what I thought was interesting in the research is that George Romero and Richard Rubenstein had a practice for Laurel Entertainment to – they didn't want anybody else messing with the film to make a television version. Okay. So then they would go through the script before the night before shooting and they'd say like, well, Steven, this, you can't say meteor shit, you know, like, so rewrite the line of dialogue when it wasn't acceptable for a television version. And so once they got the theatrical version, they'd be like, okay, now do it with Stephen King. Why, they were worried that that it might get turned into a TV movie? Well, they wanted to have... That they that's a, that was a stream of income for the movie. Oh, they're thinking. Oh, you're saying. But they well, didn't want somebody else to either cut it out or dub it themselves. So they did two take. They they did they. Do- so apparently they would have Stephen King would re- and there's like and having Stephen there rewrite the dialogue. He could rewrite it, and it was written. And the new dialogue is written by the guy that wrote. So it. there's maybe alternate cuts that aired on TV that would not have meteor shit in it. Yeah, that's interesting. That's the idea. Well, they do that. I th- I've seen movies where. They, you know, I mean, I've seen weird stuff where it looks like they even like CGI like bras on women's breasts and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But I've seen stuff where they'll have, you know, they'll actually ha- replace the dialogue on set. They think of that ahead of time as yeah. opposed to dubbing it. Sure. Having like, you know, Jackie Gleason be dubbed by Fred Flintstone. Why don't you get out of here? You know, and, and smoking the bandit. But that, yeah. So That's apparently good. that was something else that Stephen King did, which was he would sit there and the night before he'd be like, okay, here's the television. Those lines replaced for the television version. Sure. Uh, and, you know, the only the other thing that I, I think is kind of interesting in terms of behind-the-scenes stuff is because I have a little bit of insight into the making of it because I interviewed John Harrison for Scored to Death, the podcast. He ended up doing the script. Um, and I've also interviewed Donald Rubenstein, who did the music for Martin. And so I've gotten a little bit of insight into the way Romero worked. And in terms of, he was very relaxed, apparently, as a director. He seems like that generally. Yeah. I mean, he's a chain smoker from what I've seen, like Carpenter. But he seems very like, you know, he's not yelling on set. And that's what I love. I like calmness on a set. You know, let everybody, everybody do their job. You know, John Harrison and people that have worked with him said he, they never saw him yell on set. That's great. Not a single time. Yeah. And he was definitely in charge, but if somebody had an idea that he thought was a good idea, 
he would he was he was like willing to hear ideas and implement and if it. it was good he thought he would use it that's great um so it was a very like you know everybody was involved and everybody wanted to do their best because they all liked george and uh now with more money bigger budget bigger stars and all this stuff it's a it's getting a little more quote-unquote professional now apparently Romero's relaxed style on set didn't go very well. Uh, didn't go over very well with some of the like trained college, you know, uniony type. The teamster guys, first ads, yeah, the first assistant directors, who are the people that's like you gotta make sure we're on schedule and there's paperwork that needs to be done, and if we're not on schedule and they're like gotta get people on set and blah blah blah. But I've seen a rumor that this is the exact same crew that then goes on and does sleeps uh, sleepaway camp. I've heard that that this this the Very film well crew could be. I mean, I know that's in the, some of Romero, some of Savini's guys are people that he met on the Prowler and well, Burning. Evidently, from what Savini's saying, there's a there's a span of time here when he's doing these movies. They get bigger budget down when he gets to like Day of the Dead with people, but t- according to him, it's only him and this other seventeen year old, this kid called Daryl uh, Ferrucci, which and I it's just the he, two of them. Which I think he meets on the Burning. Yeah. And Which, it's the two of them cranking out all the effects. Because apparently for The Burning... Uh, Another great movie. Slight you know. sidetrack. Yeah. Uh, there's enough money on The Burning, and they say, like, they, we have money in the budget for you to hire an assistant. What year's The Burning? That's prior to The Prowler, right? I guess. Or right around the time? That's the, know, because the like Prowler in the, the 13th is 80. Yeah. And then and Maniac so it's gotta is 80. Be, it's got to be, like, 81. Right, yeah, and so is the Prowler, 81, 82, and that's another sidetrack of Blake and I. We both have sleepover stories for the Prowler and the Burning because we, we were has a, we were going we, on a... Because we watched them together. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Yeah, we went, we went and tracked them down because we were trying to um, we digest as much Savini. We were doing a Savini fest. Because we couldn't find the, all the B-sides of Savini because we got into Maniac and we're like, you know, we knew his zombie stuff and he's yeah. the king of splatter. We're like, let's find the Prowler. And you had the book. And and I mean, bo- we, yeah. Maybe we were just about to meet him or had just met him at the, the convention. convention. Yeah. So but, that comes out of that second book I have, not the Grand Illusions, but there's a newer book from maybe the 90s that I, I got from him and I had him signed, uh, which is a little cheaperly made than this really nice Grand yeah. Illusions book. And in that, it's it's all just a uh, transcription of him being interviewed by whoever. And in that, he says, I think he says it's the same film crew that then goes on to do Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, well, what's interesting is he... That's my catchphrase. I've realized as I say that a lot on, on podcasts. What? That's int- what's what, what's interesting about that is. Well, I say that too. This is really interesting. Um, that used to bother me when we first started doing this show. The interesting thing is, it's like you can't say that all the fucking time. I'm talking about not myself. everything can be inter- can yeah. be the interesting thing. Yeah. Or I say like like what? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, well. My wife listened to five seconds. She's like, you're stuttering. I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> to cut it all out? I mean, we are not professional broadcasters. Yeah, for Christ's sakes, we're we just, are movie nerds. Yeah, we're God just damn. eating over a diner. Having a plate of mozzarella sticks, Christ's sakes! Sorry, but so for the for the burning, they they say you can we have money in the budget for you to have an assistant. So he calls. I'm going to call who, my who, buddy, who's Savini. This? Okay, I'm going to have for the burning. I'm going to call my buddy Tasso. And oh, if anybody, love Tasso. And anybody that used a, to be Rod. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, what's that smell <laughs> on the Bell Parkway? That's Tasso. He's Viran. <laughs> but anybody that's a Savini fan knows Tasso because he's you know one of the bikers in Dawn of the Dead, and, and he's, he's the guy they interview that's like behind the and Buddha. He's, in Night, he's one of the guys in Night Riders, right? Mm-hmm. He kind of looks almost Asian himself, like he's going. You know, I mean, well, like, I don't know. I don't know about that. I never really thought about it. 
Yeah. Maybe. But he's familiar. He was Savini's sure. best friend. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you see all the behind-the-scenes footage of, like, uh, Dawn of the Dead from docu- from the Document of the Dead documentary, and you see him and Tasso like, working out. Uh, you know, maybe Tasso's the guy on the on the car? Yeah, holding on. Holding on to the car and on to that. He might even be the person that Savini's talking to with the binoculars. Remember when they first find the the, the mall? So he's like, I'm going to call Tasso. And we just met last week. We went, we did that, uh, as is recording, we did the convention and we met um, Brendan Faulkner who is a, did, who's a filmmaker in his own right who made, one of the filmmakers who made Spookies. Yeah, and he's done a bunch of, uh, you know, just film working in, in the industry and he had a, extra bit in Dawn of the Dead. He was the one of the zombies that get the pie in the face at the end there. He's one of the pie in the face yeah. zombies. And shows up in a lot of other stuff. And we may we have maybe potentially Including try to get him on the Night show. Nighthawks. We talked to him about Nighthawks. Yeah, he's on Nighthawks. And I, then I told him my Randy <laughs> Jurgensen Nighthawks story. He's like, that's interesting. And then we talked about Joe Spinell. I was like, our friend Randy Jurgensen knows Joe Spinell. He's like, I knew Joe Spinell too. I was like, everybody knew Joe Spinell. Jesus. We, you know, it's just a Joe Spinell retrospective. But anyway. Well, anyway, so uh, back to the story. Yeah. Uh, the story. But the people that are making the burning come back to Safina and like, well, you know what? We hired you somebody. And he's like, well, who? He's like, he's like the son of one of the grips. And Safina's like, oh, shit. Like, I'm just like, they wanted to get this hit on the movie and he's not going to be able to do anything. It turns out the kid's like really smart and really good at problem solving and he's great. It's just the 17-year-old uh, Daryl Ferrucci? So it's Daryl Ferrucci. And so originally... Savini was like, oh, I got to babysit the 17-year-old kid or whatever. And it turns out that the kid's great. And so he ends up taking the kid and over they, to Creepshow and a bunch of films. Yeah, they do a slew. So at the time, if you think about that, that, that Savini is only using him. And that's his team. So they're both, like we said, they have like, he's in one of the locker rooms. He makes this uh, studio yeah. in the in the stu- school they're using like as a as a soundstage. And they're just cranking out all the prosthetics, all the makeup, all the masks, just the two of them. And this other woman, too. There's a woman that's helping them, too. Yeah. Well, then yeah, by the time they get to Day of the Dead, then that's when yeah, they Greg have a Nicotero team. and... Because they're, they're, then they're having to have, like they did in Dawn of the Dead, they're having to have, like, stages of, this zombie's going to be this kind of a zombie. You know, yeah. So, they, you know, they had a whole, like, it's almost like a train or a uh, a list of, what do you know, I, I forget, because there's a statistic he said on Dawn of the Dead where he, he did, like, I don't know, 2,000. We said that last year. Yeah. yeah. You know, go, watch, go listen to the yeah. Dawn of the Dead. So, so, anyway, so my point was, the, like... Properly trained first uh, first assistant directors could not deal with Romero's laid back style, so they needed somebody. So Richard uh, Rubenstein calls up John Harrison. Now John Harrison had met uh, George Romero. He, like I said, he and Pat Booba had a, their own company, Squaw Booba, in uh, Pittsburgh area. And they're like, hey, well, this fucking guy, he made Night of the Living Dead, and now he's making all this other stuff. We have equipment. Maybe we should call him and say, like, if you ever need somebody to shoot something or edit something, like, we're available. So they look up in the paper, in the, in the yellow pages, and they find his offices. <laughs> his phone number is Like the office of, of the company that's his commercial company, Romero's commercial company. And he said, we called up, and we're expecting a like a secretary to answer and George Romero answers the phone and they're like uh hi Mr. Romero we have a production company and uh we have some equipment and we just want to you know let you know if you ever need anybody and Romero's like where are you guys 
And it turns out he was like the block down. Their office was a block away from Romero's office. And Romero's like, I'll be right over. And so Romero comes over. Shit, clean everything up. <laughs> Put everything away. And looks and sees the, uh, what they have, the equipment they have, sees the reels of the things they've done. And so they end up working with Romero on the sports documentaries. Okay. Which is a sidetrack to get income. Yeah. yeah, and so, uh, so what year is that? That's not. This is not creep show. This is year. No, this before. is in the seventies. Okay. Um, coincidentally, there's a whole other. John Harrison had a whole other career before this as a bass player, and he was Roy Buchanan's bass player, who's a was a great like uh, rock blues guitar player in the seventies, and so there's videos of Roy of Roy Buchanan. Like live uh, that you can see on YouTube, where John Harrison's the bass player. <laughs> Small <laughs> so, world. That's a whole other thing. So, uh, so that's how Pat Booba ends up becoming a very close confidant of George Romero's. Is this meeting? Yeah, and um, John Harrison as well. And John Harrison is the zombie in Dawn of the Dead that gets the screwdriver in the ear. Get that screwdriver out of my head. Oh, okay, that's interesting. And Pat Booba's mom's house is. Is the house in Martin? It's your mom's house. <laughs> and apparently, John Harrison was writing some, adapting some script or writing some, developing some story with Laurel. And so Richard Rubenstein calls John Harrison, like, "Look, we need somebody to come down and be the the first assistant director." And John Harrison's like, "I don't, I've never been a first assistant director, especially not on like a real movie. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know, is- like, I don't know what the job entails." And he's like, "Look, I'll, I'll get a union guy." to come or whatever. I'll get like a real guy to come and do all the paperwork. We just need somebody to be here to keep things moving. It's someone that knows George, that George trusts, someone that speaks George, <laughs> speaks Romero. Translate Romero to the to And the cast so that way everybody crew. feels like things are okay. You know? It's very important on a set. things are okay. Yeah. But some of these people, including I'm sure some of these like bigger Hollywood actors probably love the movie and love everything, but are not used to working at the tempo. In yeah, which so they want Romero. a semblance of order that they have on when they're doing these other and things. so we just need someone that's part of the family sure. to come. And so he's like, all right. So he goes and he becomes the first assistant director on Creepshow. And so he's on the set every day with George. And so they start talking about, so George, how are you going to score it? And George is saying, well, we're going to do it like we did Night of the Living Dead and most of Dawn of the Dead. Which is go to a li- these music libraries and just get pay the rights and get source music, which I, we talked about. I was watching that famous cop show, Naked City, in the 50s, and I'm hearing cues that end up 10 years later being in Night of the Living Dead, and I'm like, I know this music, which ends up being in like Ren and Stimpy, the Rubber Nipples episode. Yeah. You know, call the police. Um, it's just these famous music cues that you hear, and he was just, yeah. I guess you just pay the... You know, fuck it. They send you a bunch of records at the time, and you listen to the records, and you say, I need this. uh, Like, you write down what, you fill out what you want, and they probably send you a tape, like quarter-inch tape. And then you pay the rights, and you have the rights to put that in your movie, and you don't have to worry about getting a composer or whatever. And it's like, in that way, you know, it's all going to be old. We'll take all these old horror movie music that people people will know and work for the the context of the movie that we're doing. And uh, so that's, so Harrison's like that's cool but then they start getting the tapes and they start listening to them and apparently the sound quality really differed yeah from like decade to decade 
And, and if you think about that, that time you're getting into like the high fidelity of stereo and yeah. stuff. So I guess, and we talked about when we did the black hole in 1979 or so, that's the first movie recorded digitally, I think. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're starting to tiptoe into that water. So like you're saying, they're getting these tapes and, and they're oddly, hearing the, And oddly enough, Maniac is one of the first movies to be mixed into Dolby. Oh, fucking <laughs> awesome. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so they start listening to this stuff, and John Harrison's like, you know, George, like the fidelity of yeah. these recordings, a lot of these recordings, like the movie's better than this. They're really yeah. showing its age, yeah. He's like, you know, I, I'm a musician. I have not a, to toot my own horn. I, I have a lot of equipment. Let me see. It started off with like I think he was like, let me see if I can clean up the way some of it sounds, and then it was like, well, you know, this doesn't sound so great, and you know. M- you're still going to use it, but let you know. Maybe I can write some themes that will go kind of like transitional stuff. Sure, to kind of link some of these. As things. Blake said a couple of weeks ago, what is it? It's the uh, the cartilage or the you know <laughs> what I mean the the the, the key to hold it all together to bind it up. So it's so slowly and surely, John Harrison's role as the composer of the movie just kept getting bigger and bigger until he ends up scoring about three quarters of the movie. Okay, there are still some uh tracks in it yeah uh library tracks and there's a great cd that came out a couple years ago i'm gonna say i'm not even gonna attempt to say who put it out because i don't want to get it wrong yeah but there's a great uh thing that has like all the library tracks and all the harrison's oh, I gotta music get that. so it's like the complete since we're here that's one of my high one of the highlights for me for this movie and i hope i don't cite stuff that's library track is the soundtrack to this i think some of some of the stuff on here is so well done yeah it's so it evokes certain like the scene um that tied you over like when he's on the beach and he's running and you have this beautiful (coughs) there's strings there's you know there's there's uh woodwinds and some of the stuff there's one part a lot of that stuff's actually probably the library music but But, um, still i mean it's a great use of that music i mean romero was kind of you know what he also talks about. Sorry, to, no, uh, keep I, mean, going. I cut, I cut you, you off all the time. Keep but going. I just one thing that Harrison does say in the interview that, that I did with him. He said, you know, the, the amazing thing about George is that he was had a great ear yeah. for music, and so even when he used library sound, library music, he would take a piece from here and a piece from another piece, oh, he had it. and he would edit them to a, make them do what of, he needed yeah, to do. I mean, the, for me, the whole that whole sequence uh, to tide you over, like you hear that really angelic voice that you know that really ghostly kind of uh, uh, yeah. singing. It's it's ama- It's very when I say to me, it's very romantic. I don't mean like romantic. I love it's like for me, like it's the romanticism yeah. of the era that mm-hmm. it, that it's kind of bringing up, and I find it so. I mean, this, this, at some parts you even think you're hearing a theremin. Yeah, you know, what I mean, it's just it's so well done, and I just think it works so well. Even the uh, the the synth stuff they have in it and all that, and the the, the music when they're doing the um, the crate. Yeah, you know the very that, that piano thing. Yeah, is my favorite piece of music of the whole movie. You know that that, that's that hard, little that's piece. Harrison. Yeah, all that. I mean, it just you know each um, story has a style of music that adheres itself to and kind of 
brings out and polishes and highlights what they're talking about. So that's why you see like the, you know, like I said, the romanticism in the tied you over the proper collegiate, very, the piano, like it's a sympathy or a piece, you yeah, know, yeah. like a, a, you know, a movement. So and very when you get well. to the cockroach episode, it's just a lot of like weird noises yeah, and stuff. You know, which can, and it kind of it lends itself to like the tech that, that EG Marshall has in his place with the buttons and the doors and all that, you know, very high end, you know, so, so I think it's very well done. Yeah. So then Harrison goes on to do Dawn of Day of the Dead. Which is another great which soundtrack. Which is one of my favorite horror movie soundtracks ever. Yeah. Um, so th that's basically the story of that. I mean, there's more you can go. He talks a little bit about more about doing the theme and bringing in the kid choir and the na 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 because he was thinking it was kids and Even comic that, books. You know, and, it's, it's yeah, that's the, yeah, like that. It's so good. I forget, yeah, over the credits and stuff. But the one piece, one piece of music, the one story about a piece of music in it that I thought was pretty interesting because is this what you got from him or this is what you this read? This is what I got from him. So we should also put a plug in that, that you should go check out Blake's book, Score to Death. Uh, you should check out, this is from... Um, Score to Death podcast. Podcast. And uh, an interview with John Harrison will also be in the next book. People, Blake's doing the <laughs> Lord's work here, trans, doing all these interviews that for decades to come, people are going to really realize that what Blake is collecting in these, these anthology books and <laughs> things. In my... In my years now, it's been literally years of uh, trying to document and study and, and preserve in, in writings about horror film music and film music in general. When certain stories pop out that are, I find very uh, unique in terms of either the way a piece of music is used or how what inspired it is, is kind of atypical... Those are the ones that always stick out to me. So sure. I ask him, because Dave Hastings of the Brothers Hastings, um, when I told him I was going to interview John Harrison, he's like, you know, there's that piece of music and something to tide you over that is like Camp Town Races. W what part? It's, I think, when they're, they're pulling up, they're driving over to, like, the beach, and there's this thing that's like... Uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's Canton Race. But it's like a minor version of it. It's like, Yeah. It's this minor version of it. And of course, people are going to be yelling at me if I'm wrong about that piece of music, that it's actually some other piece of music. In my head, it's that. Canton Race sure. Okay. It's one of those. Yeah. You know, it's definitely not London Bridges because that's Halloween 3. Yeah. That's the. The hot's the Halloween uh, commercial. Yeah. So I think it's Kevin Rice. So anyway, so I said John Harrison. John Harrison. I said John Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> I said the piece of music that's like Canton Rises. He's like, yeah. He's like, it's it's Canton Rises, but I put it in a minor key because it sounded really eerie that way. So I said, well, where did John Harrison? Where did I come from? <laughs> I said, why did you choose that? He said because I was I was assistant first assistant director on this, I was on the set every day and Leslie Nielsen would whistle that. Now this is interesting because uh, I'm a huge Columbo fan and Leslie Nielsen's on maybe two or three Columbo episodes. But the gist in Columbo is you always it's never mentioned why, but you always hear. Um, this old man, he played do 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 knick knack patty whack, give a dog a bone. You always hear that r nursery rhyme, yeah. Either uh, in the music, in different scores or different uh, compositions or different formats or different styles, 
or he's whistling it and it becomes this theme and it's never dressed or understood why and it becomes over the process of his series you have that dun, dun, you know uh, what did i say this old man dun, 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 you know that and it's like so it's weird that like you have Leslie Nielsen then doing just you know maybe it's stuck in his head Camp Town Races um, and he's saying it every he's singing it or whistling it or humming it every day on so, set yeah so John Harris was like he would whistle it in between so takes. it's almost like it's in his head like I'm bringing Columbo up it's like that's the piece of music that Columbo's always just whistling and it's yeah. like that becomes the non-diegetic you know so he's like it just became like if, even though it's he didn't whistle it in the in the movie yeah on it's set, like his theme. On set with him, it was like he just he would whistle it all the time, and so like it just became linked in my head. So I wanted to, and it's it's a public domain piece of music. Yeah, at this point, yeah. And he's like, so I, I kind of wanted to make it. I wanted to put it in there somewhere. He's like, but then when I turned it to minor, it got really kind of weird sure. because it is this familiar thing, but now it's minor, so it's got this darker tone to it. I always thought that. I just thought that was interesting, like. Those, like I said, those stories where like a piece of music in the movie is inspired by something weird. Yeah, you know, as something that always stands out to me. And so I always thought that was because that was just inspired by Leslie Nielsen. That piece, yeah. of, that that cue. Um, so that's anything else for him? Um, I no. Yeah. Just like you know, he ends up doing a you know creep show. He ha- he's only done a couple of scores. Uh, he did creep show. He did Day of the Dead, and he did one of the stories of... And Day of the Dead's great. Yeah, Day of the Dead is a fantastic score. They all have great stories. I mean, even, like we said, that the Night of the Living Dead is public domain library. That has very iconic... I have that on my uh, my iPod. And if we do... And Dawn of the Dead has another great score, We Goblin. Yeah, plus a shitload of really great library cues. Yeah, and then now Day of the Dead is another great... You know, they did that is a fantastic score. It's epic in terms of how much music he wrote for that movie. I mean, it's more music and than it's a, of a, of its era too, right? It's kind of like got it's very eighties. Yeah. It's also which doesn't hurt it when we get to when we eventually do Day of the Dead. Ooh. I'll talk more yeah. about like where that the sound of that score. So comes many movies, from. so little time. But like you know, this past season of Stranger Things, you know, which came out summer of two thousand nineteen. Season for three? people that are listening to this in the future, ten years, in the, in the, hundred years in the a, future, a possible future. You know, I, I'm not. I don't know tech stuff. Uh, there's a there's a scene they, they they took some music from cues from certain things, including uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. But there's a very poignant scene between two of the characters, and. It's a piece of music from fucking Day of the Dead. They're actually taking it and playing it, or they're yeah. taking it and redoing it. No, okay. They just they just put it in there, That's and good. it fucking worked so well. And yeah. you know, and five vast, people got that. You mature. being one of them. <laughs> there, there are uh, tons of Day of the Dead fans, tons of horror movie fans that heard that and were like, "Wow!" But the majority of the audience doesn't yeah. know where that sure. came from, yeah. and it's like, "Oh shit, that's fucking Day yeah. of the Dead," and that is beautiful. It's like it's Tarantino gorgeous. doing that shit with like the more popular Morricone stuff, but. And, Har- get, yeah. and Harrison goes on to uh, direct Tales from the Dark Side for Richard Rubenstein. The movie. Yeah, the movie. And he also directs a couple of the episodes and scores some of the episodes okay. of the show. But then he does Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, and he scores the uh, Gargoyle episode. 
of Tales from the Dark Side. The movie. Okay. Like that's Tales from the Dark Side is also an anthology. Yeah. Movie. And so that's with a, James Remar and what's her face from Radon Chong. Yeah, Radon Chong from Commando. We just brought Commando up two weeks ago. Daughter no, of Tommy Chong yeah. of Cheech and Chong fame. Uh, big fan of of that story uh, and of Tales from the Dark Side in general, but sure. especially that story. That story is awesome. And the music from that story is awesome. It's That's a beautiful. movie I it's haven't gorgeous. seen since I was into, um, what's his face? Um, that's Buzz McKenzie. What's his name? Oh, Buster Poindexter. Yeah, since I was into Buster Poindexter and him doing <laughs> his Hit the Road, Jack. Yeah. Um, it's funny because what's his band that he used to have? The New York Dolls. Yes, I know the drummer. I'm very friends because now he's a financial advisor who comes on and is a contributor on the daytime shows I work on. And then he's, he has tinnitus, so he always has hearing aids, and he has to take out his hearing aids and put, like, an earpiece in. And then I'm talking to him like, you knew Buster Poindexter? You know, he's like a big guy in that scene, but he yeah. doesn't do it. He's now, you know, doing financial stuff. So it's so funny, like, tell me about that, you know, that era <laughs> when you were with them. You know, do you still talk to him? Or yeah, what yeah. happened when he blew up and became Buster Poindexter? You know, because that was huge in the 80s. Yeah. But that's a different story. But, but anyway. John Harrison goes on to direct for Richard Rubenstein that sci-fi miniseries I might not mean sci-fi also science fiction but I mean for sci-fi channel of Dune okay yeah from some years ago yeah so he directs that the Dune miniseries and then he's pretty big and he writes he adapts Dune for it so he writes it and then he directs that and then he writes and produces Children of Dune which was the follow-up okay miniseries for sci-fi channel which that one I think had Ricardo Montalban. No, the guy who's, I believe he's, he was in Glass. Samuel L. Jackson. No, Split. That little guy, Bruce Willis. Split. Oh, uh, what's his face? The guy who plays um, he's uh, in X-Men. Professor X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mac- believe- uh, McInerney. Uh, yeah, McAvoy. Yeah, Yeah! Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> I believe that stars him. So he Blake put- and I, are. we have two brains, but they're kind of, when they come together, they can get everything, but they don't always have Bluetooth connections. So he ends up writing and producing that. Yeah. And then he also, uh, I think, adapts and directs uh, Clive Barker's Book of Blood. Okay. For that movie, book book the book of blood, which is books of, the books of blood are I think um, I think there's a couple of them. That's a collection of short stories by Clive Barker and that are uh, movies. That some of them have been made in the movies, like Lord of Illusion comes from one of those stories, and so uh, Midnight Meat Train I believe comes from one of those stories. But so uh, in the early 2000s, is Lord of Illusions out? Can you get that anywhere? Yeah, I think Scream Factor might have just put okay, that. I like on, to rewatch that new version yeah. of that. But uh, they, John Harrison was asked to do, um, was hired to do a book of blood. So they made a movie called The Book of Blood, which I think fuses together one or two stories, but not in a, uh, not so much in an anthology type way. But yeah. Instead, kind of fuses them together. So Harrison's become kind of a director uh, in his own right. I, he, he directs television, and he is directing a few of the episodes of the new Creep Show television series on Shudder, yeah. which uh, has started airing already, and I've watched the first two episodes so far, Yeah, and I'm a little disappointed that his theme is not the theme to the show. The one from the... Nah, nah, from nah, Creepshow. Nah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a Creepshow-esque theme. Yeah, but it's not. It's not his theme. Do they and have... I wouldn't even, wouldn't even bother me if they just redid it to make it sound more contemporary. Yeah. But it's not his theme, and that they kind have of the skull in it or anything like that. They have the creeper. I mean, it's a different. Yeah, it looks quite different. I haven't seen it because it's you have to pay everything. You have to pay for now, and I don't have the money. So 
let's now turn around and get into some of this while we have the time. Yeah. Um, let's get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. What do you? Let's see. What do you got here? What should we do? Um, we we just did the whole backstory about talking about you know EC Comics and the buildup of them being able to shoot in places and how we 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 unpacked our ba- our big bags because we had a lot of chests and and steamer trunks of what's going on here. So let's go to the first story, I guess. Yeah, you wanted to talk about the stories. Yeah. So I mean, you get Father's Day. I mean, what a, what a great concept you're saying, like how Stephen King wrote it. Yeah. Uh, the concept in mind that it's a like a comeuppance with her. I'm not sure we need to. Get no. into the specifics of each of the stories. I think this movie is probably a little more yeah, recognizable, open. but in terms of going through plots. I mean, this was always my, uh, you know, uh, you know, where's my cake, Lydia? <laughs> like, uh, there's, there's from years, there's stuff I would quote or like in the in the next story, the uh, uh, Stephen King story, where the guy's like, "This is going to be extremely painful." Like, I love all this stuff. Um, this the first story is I love. You, you automatically get the style with the comic book. Um, this is a thing, too, where some years ago they did a, that director's cut re-release of Walter Hill's The Warriors, and they yeah. kind of did this. Yeah. And then that's why I was always like, hey, it kind of looks like Creepshow now, how they're doing these. They'll, they'll, they'll. I personally didn't like that cut. I, I mean, I like the beginning where he sets up on what yeah. he was basing it off of, but I didn't like the comic book interjections because I thought it ruined some of the moments in the movie. Sure. But... Uh, I love to hear how you you have that where you know you're seeing not only are you seeing at the beginning the comic book going into the frame, but then you'll have scenes where you'll see the the, the camera actually like panning across panels, and it's all live action of the cars yeah. and all that. And the idea, yeah, of, you get like the two angles of the car, yeah, on, in one frame doing a split screen, but using the comic book panels as the device to have a split screen. Yeah, so it's all that stuff is amazing. But also the end, you know, when the shit starts hitting the fan, and you get like the lights behind the primary well, lights behind them with the scrimmed shadows. Yeah, they the said gear. that they were looking to, they were kind of devised ways to make it look like a comic book quickly or those, those, how many of those inserts they could get of those wild primary colored. And they, I guess they would set up the lights that way. So like in the crate part, right when the janitor gets bitten, they would must change the light cue, and all of a sudden, at the same time, you have all the you know looks like yeah. the comic book would look with all these primary colors, where the 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 moods reflecting in the lighting. I find that amazing, as well as the sound design. It's amazing. Yeah, that's a different thing, but well, but what's it's beautiful. I mean, though, when those things, especially the ones that stick out to me, are from Father's Day because those are the first times you see it. Yeah. You know, it happens. It happens a little bit, probably in all of them. But at the end of Father's Day, when you have uh, the, the like the son, uh, those when they're just, screaming and like that, yeah. yeah and, and you see the. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it doesn't. Like I feel like it's that was so far ahead of its time that when you look at it now, it still looks fucking fresh and yeah. gorgeous. Yeah, like it doesn't look like because a lot of the stuff looks dated just because it's like people are in certain fashions people's hairstyles are a certain way you know Ed Harris is young it's great <laughs> you know but so like things date it and not yeah. necessarily in a bad way just the way it, it looks I mean it's, just, it's a time capsule yeah but when those things hit it's like it, it they look fucking gorgeous yeah and it, like those could be done today and they'd still look great yeah you know, like 
you could put that in another movie today and people wouldn't think anything of it because they just they look so yeah so well done that even by today's quote-unquote standards of you know the way you know whatever advancements of technology and film and digital and all blah 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 they still look fantastic and they look very much like something because this was way before you would do on any of that shit digitally like sin city yeah and all that that's the thing too is that yeah to do all this stuff you're actually practically having to build light cues you're saying get the actors to do these inserts behind scrims that you'd light so that you'd see the maybe effect of the the lightning something almost like the batman 66 to get that comic book reaction that you'd see on the panel of the original comics from the 50s plus i mean this is a little some inside baseball for like like the real technical film nerds uh Shooting film, you know, you don't develop your own film. You have yeah. to send it someplace. Yeah. Now, what you when you when you would send your film, the, your negative someplace, and you'd get a work print back so that you could start editing because this is pre digital. You would actually cut and paste film. You would splice. You would pay them to do. I think what was either a one light work print or uh, like a three light work print, and then they you'd have guys who would sit there and as they were filming it, they. As they were processing it, as they were processing it, and you know, making making a a work print from the (coughs) negative, they would sit there and they would do like a rough color correction of your print. So uh, that's why you'd see people use things like the color bars, uh, like like a slate with color. Yeah, because you have to it. you have to adjust and get the right so that they could see what the something recognizable colors look like in the lighting that they're, you're shooting. And at. you remember when we did my senior film? You you were the DP on that. I wanted to have a lot of the bright creep show kind of looking lights. Yeah. And then when we got it processing back, they processed the most, all that shit out. Yeah, they because pr- I didn't I didn't think to tell them and I didn't have the money or whatever to yeah. have to do it again. What happens is because they saw like these crazy like orange lights in or the blue film yeah. or whatever lights, and then they'd be like, that looks weird. Yeah. So then they, they would try. They think they're doing you a favor by you know timing it right or whatever, yeah. or, or upping or downing the exposure. And I think the only there's only a couple scenes I don't remember like when they're sitting in the car outside before the the burglary that was really blue. I think yeah. they kept that and then maybe something else. But yeah, so I was going for that look and then yeah, I didn't. You're supposed to put a note on your please don't. Yeah, you put a notation and I was like I didn't know that they would even. And then when we got it back, me, you, and Aaron were like fuck. <laughs> You know, so apparently, this was a big problem in processing creep shows. Oh, really? Okay. Look at that. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I don't feel so like an because idiot. they had these crazy primary reds and blues and stuff, and so they would they'd be getting they'd have to like the color corrector fight yeah. with the color correctors the, at the processing places to be like, no, no, don't time out. Yeah, you know, and don't what correct is that? the yeah, red. Yeah, that means you just have to just you're playing with the exposure. To yeah, try the to different what you know they'll add more blue to offset the red so that it. You know, makes it more, and they think they're doing you a favor by correcting maybe. Uh, oh, this shit looks crazy. Yeah. Know, something went wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some guy, you know, some some union guy. So my point was, yeah. my, that's what I was getting at. Is to then keep all those effects became a, actually a very arduous process for yeah. them, um, especially in in you know, obviously they have a little more control when they go to make the final yeah print, but. In editing, they had to really fight with the with the color of the processing places to not <laughs> correct yeah. those crazy colors. And this is something you don't have to even to worry about now. You don't have to worry about digital because yeah. you're shooting on camera. You, or you're shooting you on your fucking phone. And you're, <laughs> and you're 
and you're color correcting it yourself on your app on the you know uh, or in your in post production and your editing equipment. So the, this first story is I love you know watching it now and knowing it so well. It's so interesting to see that the idea of the um, all, all, suddenly all the. Uh, the 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 eroticism in it, where it's like you know the the daughter's married Ed Harris because you could you know maybe she you know she he's like a he's like a fuck toy, and then even the mother is kind of interested in Ed Harris. Maybe even the brother, who's you know I get I got in overtones maybe he's bisexual yeah. or gay. I even got overtones that maybe you're getting a little incest between the brother and sister, a la like Game of Thrones. You see now, yeah. spoiler alert. So everything <laughs> you know, even the mother was you know so, and then Ed Harris is just like yeah you know he's married into this rich family, and then you have the patriarch who's the mother who's coming and she killed the father i love the flashback of that with the ashtray because very much we go back to like the opening a night stalker with point of oil where it's like you know you, the old the old person you're taking care of you begin to hate them or whatever and then you end up killing them or for whatever yeah. for the money or whatever even uh telltale heart by yeah, Edgar Poe. you know so it's um i love all that and then the effect of when he comes out of the grave. I mean, there, there's a, a, an interesting story where they talk about, I guess, for the, uh, there's a James Joyce short story called, uh, uh, what's this called? Um, Finnegan's Wake, where in the James Joyce, who's an Irish author, uh, whiskey in Gaelic means water of life. And in that story, they pour some whiskey on the person who died and he comes back to life, uh, a builder's laborer. He falls off a ladder, breaks his skull, and they revive him by pouring whiskey on his face, and that brings him back to life in that story. And if that becomes, that's off an old street ballad, a Dublin street ballad, all these one of these bar songs. So that speculation, if she did pour some whiskey on the grave, and maybe that started this whole thing. But when he comes out of the grave, I mean, it's such a different look from what we've talked about before, from certainly Romero's zombies, yeah. but it's so much like the creep of uh, the it looks like a cover of an ec yeah. comic and he, and then the voice you hear this voice which is this effect they put on kind of all the stories when they have to do this voice and it's terrifying for me yeah, that yeah. they're speaking through like maybe a 40s microphone like you know where's my cake lady you know that weird gargling effect they have it's terrifying but you hear ver- yeah. variations of it in each story i and, think it's important to note that like this is another george romero zombie movie yeah you know, like very different zombies. Though. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, we think of, you know, like Romero kind of invented the zombie film genre in a mo- in the modern zombie film genre with Night of the Living Dead in, in a certain sense, and certainly it was the success of those movies that started like a genre of zombie movies. Um, and what's his name is in who I didn't realize until doing the research. Um, you have uh, uh, John Ambles. Yeah, as they wanted to get a, you know, because the actor John uh, Lormer, the the seasoned actor playing the father who gets killed, they needed someone thinner. Yeah, to, to so that they can Savini could build off like of a skeletal. Yeah, so it would look kind of proportional to him. So they got Ambles, who at the time did Martin, and then goes on. He's a, one of the the doctors in Day, Day of the, the Dead. Dead yeah. Um, they got him to just do this part. I think of he being plays co- a small part in Night Rider, and maybe he's even in, is he in the Crazies? I feel like he's a small. He may not. He may be in the I Crazies, but I don't think so. Uh, so you know, you get him to be in this part, and it's a beautiful Tom Savini done. It's, yeah. you're right out of the. You know, it's great looking. They put like Rice Krispies on his eyeball to make it look like maggots, or they put other things on like 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 fish bait. 
You know, now, apparently there are scenes where they did get like mealworms and maggots and yeah. stuff, and John Ambos wouldn't do it. So they had to get a girl, right? So they got like the script girl <laughs> to dress up, and she was all right. So they put her in the eye sockets, and it's such a great monster. And then you have the next scene where you know that the the the, the, the she she gets killed, the, the patriarch mother. Then Ed Harris goes out to see what's going on and I love the dancing you know they're waiting around and like yeah, it's so yeah. it's so great you know and Ed Harris looks great for his you know he's fitting all this and they're like I don't know if they tell him to go out and look but when he goes outside you get to that cemetery such a scary quintessential to me like movie like you know era of romanticism sure. cemetery of all that and the lighting and then when he gets killed it's also very like what's going on because when he falls into the grave and that stone, I found that so frightening when I was little where he's just there in that you're big also, stone. You're also like, get up. Yeah, you know, yeah, can't you just get up? And, <laughs> but then you don't know. It's not necessarily... <coughs> it's not him. It's not necessarily the zombie doing it. It's yeah. moving on its own. And then when it falls on him and then the, the end you have, um, the, you know, with the, the, the denouement where he, he cuts the... He kills the maid and then the maid, you know, then he gets the other person. Uh, he gets the daughter and he puts it on her head. And then he's like, you know, I've got my cake. And he just wanted the uh, the cake at the end. It's it's just, it's really, really brilliant. I guess also they say, you know, the maid's name is Mrs. Danvers. And that could be a reference to the housekeeper in Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca from 1940. Mm-hmm. Because the, mm-hmm, because the housekeeper in that movie is Mrs. Danvers. And that's Rebecca's, Hitchcock's first American movie. Remember? When it mm-hmm. comes up, you remember, they we saw it together. Like- yeah, with, uh, what's his face in that? Lawrence Olivier. So that's Father's Day. Loved it. And, you know, me little knowing who Ed Harris is, it's like, oh look, it's Ed Harris, you know, in, in this. That guy was you know, in Jackknife. Yeah, that guy's such movies as Jackknife <laughs> in the Abyss, you know, and uh, whatever else he was a coma. <laughs> He's in, uh, you know. So that's that one. Next story is the Stephen King story. This always, to me, was so revolting, so disgusting that you know, because I'm, I'm as I'm getting older and becoming a germaphobe, and this, yeah. and it's just so silly watching it now that he's fucking touching. This this fucking thing comes down and you know and his first thing is he's going to touch it and he pours water and this you know you don't even know what this is you know and then it cracks open he pours it out puts it in a bucket and then it's all already he's got these little blisters with the blisters yeah look great the, the blisters you know are I mean? gross exactly and then he's got it on his tongue and then it's starting to spread and I love that he's watching wrestling it's old wrestling and if you can listen really closely you hear it's Vince McMahon doing the commentary you know of yeah. um, and it was like the Hawaiian it's a very famous Hawaiian. I forget the guy's name, but wrestling. And then him, I love the idea of, uh, which it works perfectly, you have the one actor, uh, Bingo O'Malley, who's playing all the parts in that. He plays the doctor, he plays the, his father in it, he might even play a third part in it. The guy who he's getting from the university, maybe. Yeah. You know, I think that works great, you know, where they have yeah. him doing all the stuff. And you had something about Bingo. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> Good old Bingo O'Malley. I maybe, I, I would... Uh, if we have time, yeah, there's something I want to mention at the end. Okay, so we'll keep that in our back pocket. So uh, that that story always just it's, disgusting. It's a bold choice to make that second, I think. Yeah, because it's you're riding on King's performance. Yeah, which, which is, is it a very cartoonish. Yeah, um, so it's it it it's it feels the most unique out of the bunch. And um, not just in tone, but also the story. Yeah, is unlike the rest. Of, you know, the the rest of the stories. It's not so much a come up in story. It's like the least EC. Yeah, in terms of the way we think of EC, I'm sure there are so many stories. That's in, also in EC comics. That's a good point because we brought up last week about the um, 
you know, everybody for the most part kind of has a comeuppance. And that's yeah. what I was saying, like, but with there, there, the Tom least, Baker were, Vault of Horror. They remember? were morality tales. I was like, he's like. actually in the right at the end because he's getting revenge. Why is he getting his comeuppance for just getting revenge on them? Yeah. Because then by that logic, the blind people in Tales from their Crypt should be getting their comeuppance from fucking with the guy. So in this story, it's like Stephen King's kind of a just caught in the situation. He just wants to pay off the yeah, loan on and it's so farm. And it's so sad. And it's at the end that, and I find that so heartbreaking where, you know, you have that part with um, his father where his father, in that must be actually kind of a, uh, I don't know if it's a premonition, like his dad's really coming to him in the mirror and he's like, you know, if you do this, yeah. you're going to, you know, you're and then he has to, he's like, I can't, you know, he jumps in the, the, the water, he spreads it and at the end when it's everywhere, it's all over the freaking, uh, he, he's drinking freaking uh, uh, Ripple you know, yeah. uh, and then when he gets the shotgun and he's like, "Please, please, I don't want," it. and it's just so sad. And he ends up blowing his brains out. Yeah. So sad. And then you, like you said, at the we talked about, you see, it's it's growing everywhere, and you're hearing the weather reports like, "We're gonna get farmers are gonna love, we're gonna get a lot of rain," and then it's, <laughs> and it's like it's the beginning of the end. You know, it's like yeah. it's a it's basically an alien invasion, but through like you know, it's almost like what you get out of uh, invasion of the body snatchers, yeah. or you know, that kind of invasion where. And a year, the whole planet's going to be covered in that fucking crap. You know, it's yeah. it, it's disgusting. But I, you're right. It's unique. It is bold to have it be that first, that second story. And I think it's something that critics, you know, the, the, a lot of the people who were negative about this movie were talking about how campy it is and how over the top and how st- you have these great actors doing such stupid stuff. And maybe yeah. this is the reason. You know, you, this. But I think King is great in it. You know, I think he really. Yeah, ends I mean, up, I think you know, it fits that. Yeah, the piece just fine. Sure, like, I think it works. But it is a, I, I do think it is a gutsy decision to make that yeah. second. And you know, you get a lot of tosso too. The, I like the use of split screen in this movie. You have the scene where in Father's Day when she's on the grave and then the, the arm comes out of frame. And I, I keep trying to figure out if that was just miscut because on my right, well, I thought I, I, it doesn't seem like it's framed right, the yeah. arm. You thought, you know, it's kind of cut off. But like in this story, where you see the guy with the big with the big uh, 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 fucking butcher knife, or well, not butcher knife, it's like a big old what do you call those blades? But he's you know, and then you see the split screen of him with King in the background, all worried. Yeah. So the yeah. use of split screen in this movie is really cool. How they do that? They're almost using that that dual focus lens, maybe. Or, yeah, the diopter. Yeah, the or diopter. maybe they're even doing it in post. But I I love the idea of that and that, and then you know, you know even like the. Uh, just the light changes and all that kind of, you know, it's it's all very, like, um, you and I always reminisce about the Cosby, the Bill Cosby stand-up special, which is maybe called himself, where he's just on stage on a chair, and he's got this big skike, skite behind him, and gradually the skite changes, and all of a sudden his background's blue. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden his background's red, and you don't notice the change, and I see, like, they, them doing a lot of that. Like we were saying with this, where you see, yeah. like, the, the light will change, and you're like, oh, you know, and it seems like it's, it's since it's pre CGI, it's very like practical effects they're doing. Sure, like a lot yeah. of planning went into this, you know. Well, that's the that's the benefit of working on a c- controlled soundstage, you know. Yeah, like you can set all this stuff up, and it's a little bit of a better, more, more controlled environment. You're not dealing with daylight coming in or having to block out daylight. And yeah, have all the you can put scaffolding up, and you're building sets that don't necessarily have ceilings, so that or you can move the walls around and. You know, it's definitely a, like this film couldn't really have been made yeah. on location, you know, in, t- in its entirety. Yeah, because of, especially back then with what they were working with, um, the Father's Day Corpse, if in that grand illusion, Stephen uh, Tom Savini talks about that they they made another whole bust and head of 
the husband that she ends up killing to get the to marry into the riches that in the hunting accident with the shotgun. Yeah, yeah. And they made a bust of him, of the actor the, who was a local actor, and they did it so that you could see the shotgun blast blow him his his cheek and face off and. They researched it looking at real shotgun wounds they got from the police department, and they didn't use it. And I guess evidently he says in the uncut version, if there's a longer cut of this, there is a flashback of you seeing him on the on the, the cooling board or the morgue slab, and you see the damage to the huh. to the dead man's face. But what they did was they recycled that bust, and that is the bust, the head they put in the in the beach sand, the reversal, they put a wig on it. Oh, okay. And that's the back of the head you see when this when the when the tides coming in they used hmm. it there so um the next story after the, the stephen king one is what is it the is it the it's tied you tied you over yeah this to me is like my most favorite yeah. story of and the it's series another romero zombie tale again yeah exactly romero edited it himself i find this this so polished in so many ways to me it is very ec comics uh Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson in this, it seems like maybe they work in the industry. They're like newscasters or I something. Think he's a, maybe a television producer or like a Leslie a, Nielsen or like a TV host or something. Like he's yeah. yeah. And his he's his wife is cheating on him with Ted Danson and I feel like Ted Danson's like a sports guy or something. Like he's athletic cuz that's why he's, you know, and um I got to say that Leslie Nielsen is fucking amazing in this and I I was trying to think of this is the last one of the last times you see Leslie Nielsen for the most part doing straight work because he then later in life reinvents himself in this brilliant comedy of the Naked Gun movies and all those other movies he yeah. does. But he did a tons of that. Um, you know, he's in Forbidden Planet as the leading man. He's in a lot of tons of TV work. He's you in know, Repossessed with Linda Blair. Yeah. <laughs> That's he, later on. That's part of the, know, the spoof he, era. Yeah, and he's he's in the what is it, the Dracula, Dracula Dead and Loving. Maybe he's, he's yeah. the, you know he's the no, grandfather, or the vampire. Um, he you know and he's do he does all this straight work, uh, episodic work in the you know he's Irwin Allen, the Poseidon Adventure. He's the captain before the, the when the wave hits. You know, and you forget these little things. And in this, I didn't know if this is his last straight role, but he's so good in this. I for believe my he's opinion. also in Prom Night. Yeah, I think you're right. He is in prom. Which might be after this. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's. He does ton of tons of TV, so I'm sure he had a lot of straight work after this. But like at mainstream, yeah, you know, people. I think our generation may remember him just as that bumbling naked gun. Sure. You know, uh, Drevin, whatever his name is in that with George Kennedy, uh, and the Juice. Um, but he's so. He, I always thought he was so good in this, and Ted Danson is so good in this too. And the idea that you know this. You know, that he's a tech nerd and he's like, you know, he pulls the gun on dance and he's like, come with me. And he gets him to the beach. And I remember uh, the years ago, I was dating a, um, a, a girl who would, lived out in um, uh, the Hamptons in Long Island. And I showed her this on the train one night. We were, dry, we were come, going back up to Connecticut. So we had a couple hours on the train. So we, we, we had my little DVD player and we watched it together. And she was a beach person. And this really, uh, like, like, horrified her and she didn't like it and i said why don't you like it and and she said it's not i was like you don't like it because it's bad you don't like it because of the ideas in it and i've always found this so frightening that that he he did he buries him and the tie it's such a great you know device there's a robert altman movie with elliot gould um it's one of arnold schwarzenegger's first movies where they do the long goodbye 
I think it's called. It's it's a Raymond Chandler book that they adapted in the seventies, and he plays Philip Marlowe in it. Yeah. And there's a scene where Sterling Hayden in it. Uh, uh, he's gonna kill himself at night, so he just walks out of his beach house and starts going into the ocean. And I find that so frightening that someone's yeah. gonna kill themselves by just walking out into the ocean to drown. Sure. And this to me is just so frightening. And then well, there, it's funny you said because there is there is like a certain, you know, obviously not visually because it's contemporary, um, but there is like there is a certain noir sensibility about it yeah. I feel like this idea of like infidelity and revenge there is something about like there is like a classic Hollywood yeah and well certainly with the music too yeah the, the brutal over the top when he comes running when you see Ted Danson for whatever reason oh there's because he shows him there's a there's a hole with a thing so Ted Danson goes running out there thinking that his wife's or the girlfriend's buried out there and you have this beautiful uh, transition of music where it's uh, apparatic ah, you know what I mean and uh, then he you know and I just to me this is not hammy at all this no. this scene and uh, and it very well could have been but Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson just handle it so well yeah um, and you know and then also this is the technology you know to me I guess it's so antiquated by today's standards, but it was so high tech at the time that he's going to have a camera set up and he's running all this cabling <laughs> on the back of the yeah, you know, yeah. CJ Jeep and he's you know what I mean. And how long has he got this spool of cable that's going miles long? And the, you know, it's worth noting. I mean, we, we have it in the in the previous story too. But you know, Dion and I are a sucker for matte paintings, and that his house is, is a, a matte painting on this dune of yeah, beach because there was no house there. Yeah, and for me, when I was little, this was very much like Long Island. This was the upper well wealthy, and even though they shot this down in New Jersey like outside of um, Tom's River on this state park to be able to get the unapproachable land it looks like this guy owns all this comfort point I think it's called yeah. you know it's just so it adds a level of fright when you kind of like know the it looks like where you grew up around the east yeah, coast yeah. you know either you're you're part of the Jersey Shore, or me. I grew up off of Long Island Sound or Long Island. Like this, this places you've been. Sure. So when he buries him, and then like that realization for Ted Danson, I've always loved when he's like, "Oh my God." Because he realizes this is really going to happen. This guy isn't playing a fucking gag on him. And he in the tie, and then Leslie Nielsen's watching it, and I love. I mean, it's almost like Leslie Nielsen. There's a point where he stops laughing and he's looking and he's he's almost he's watching and he's like almost like this is going to happen and he's saying you know he's almost like like watching it get done, you know he knows it's going to happen. It's it's just so frightening yeah. and it's so upsetting. And then you have that shot of um, Leslie Nielsen underwater, you know, and then, and then oh, uh, Ted Danson. I'm sorry, Ted Danson underwater, and how they were able to do it, and it's just it's so awesome. Yeah, I mean that's it's a beautiful shot i mean it's got it has like this weird campy feel to it but it's so scary at the same time yeah but it really works and the fact that they strapped him into basically like a giant fish tank and it looks like yeah it looks like he's in they and they i guess they have an aqua lung they're just they're just having him they're just grabbing his breathing and then they're getting a shot and they have the seaweed with the sand and his hair is up to me that was very that one shot so frightening as a kid yeah because they drowned ted dance <laughs> <laughs> and sabini talks about how he was kind of off you know, oh, they, he had a Houdini style, right? He had He's like got a, a sledgehammer like nearby, just in case. Because they went put down. him, they put his head in a uh, a fish tank, like you said, an aquarium, and they did it in such a way where they were, you know, they had a, they they got him in there, and they had a like a scuba diver, and they were giving him oxygen 
take the oxygen away, get the shot, to, you know. But yeah. Savini was, and they, Savini says they had like something there just in case if they need to get the water out quickly, like a vacuum or whatever. But uh, Ted Dance, or Savini said like, yeah, Houdini style, he's ready with the sledgehammer to break that glass. So when he dies, you have this, another, again, you have this very, it turns, the score turns into this beautiful, that haunting, uh, angelic, demonic kind of voice or, or singing the angel. And you have, uh, you know, Ted Dance, you know, Leslie Nielsen starts going on with his night. And I love you have the fog coming in. Yeah. And it's very like John Carpenter's The Fog. And I think that's going along with the, the Steven Spielberg 80s ghosts of the, the poltergeist and Ghostbusters where the ghosts are bright when you see them. Yeah, yeah. That's something you don't see anymore that I'm going to steal and do <laughs> in my movie. Yeah. You also, you get the, with the fog coming in, the fog that hides whatever is coming with it. Very frightening for me. So when you see this fog on all his security cameras and he's taking a freaking shower and you see just coming in and then they open the door and they start coming in. And um, I know I'm going on a bit about this, but I just love it so much. And then, you know, when, when he finally realizes what's going on and he, and he, he, I think he see, he's hearing their voices again. It's that really freaky sound. That yeah. You know, and then he, when he f- sees them burst in and he has his gun and he's, he, it, it, to me, it's just so amazing the... The, the levels of beats Leslie Nielsen's able to get. Yeah. You know, where he's first, he doesn't realize what it is, and he shoots him, then he starts, and he realizes he's shooting him, and it's great Savini, it's great zombie work yeah. by Savini. You know, it's, apparently it's all like toilet paper. Yeah, to get that, to, to, to the barrier to get the water to come out and how he's doing his, his squid works. I think works. he talks about how like, you know, even the whole masks were all just like toilet paper with some kind of, yeah, to get, and he says he took a lot of creative license because he talked to like you know Emmys medical examiners about it, and they were like, you know, how long would it? He's like, no, a body wouldn't look that bad in you know in a night yeah. in the water, but then after a week, the body would turn black and stuff. But and you'd lose you know from the creatures, the eyelids and nose, but you wouldn't. But he's like, well, you know, so he made him look like you know proper EC comic zombies. But then when they come back. And Leslie Nielsen's kind of like crazed, and then he thinks, and then for me, he runs into the bathroom, he's hiding, and then he turns around, and they're there, and you get that scream, and it's just the the madness of him, you know, scream like freaking horrified, and then he's laughing because he realized, and then the end of it, the coda, where they put him in the, and then the whole thing is like, can you, how long can you, come on, we all float down here, Richard, we all go to the beach Richard you know it's so <laughs> freaky and then yeah that's you know love it and he's like I can hold my breath for a very long time and then it ends and then you have we go to the um, the crate yeah which opens up with that John beautiful, Harrison yeah, piano beautiful score. piano score and it sets up like the collegiate at- university atmosphere it's the longest story of the bunch I think yeah that uh, Adrian Barbeau plays an off an awful woman. <laughs> yeah, God bless her. A great performance, though. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's great. I mean, it's a bit over the top, but it works in the context of Creep Show, absolutely. Sure. Um, and, and then it's also with the dichotomy of uh, how Holbrook, yeah, who's and how understated, understated, yeah, so brilliant, very like you know, there's so much there. I mean, it's I, I guess it's a tour de force also of how much of a great of an actor he is. Yeah, where you could tell there's so much in it but he's holding back he has his wife who's just terrible and and then you you know this is something i guess i didn't realize when you're little but now when you're older it's almost like the godfather 2 where remember um fredo's 
wife's out on the dance floor and she's drinking and making a mess and they're like get her off the dance floor <laughs> yeah, or we will yeah. you know and it's an embarrassment you realize you really feel for Hal Holbrook of he's at this just like university front fun- where he works where he works his workplace yeah and he's got this wife who's just terrible to everybody she's a loud drunk and she's an angry drunk and she's obnoxious and she's mean and she's belligerent towards him and she's demeaning in front of the friends and everybody it's almost like nobody wants to say anything but everyone's looking at you know they're almost so much you know and it's it's just real upsetting, and you have Fritz Weaver in there too, who's his friend, who's almost like looking too. Who's I, it's funny too because you see like I guess his wife died some years late, earlier, so like the next scene where he's like, you know, I'll see you around nine seven. All right, you come over, all right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there know? is a. He's gonna go. It's like Indiana Jones with the students, but there's like a pseudo. Oh <laughs> yeah. Homosexual there, relationship a little, between them that yeah, a little, it's ambiguous. Very much like uh, rope or something, or you know, strangers on the yeah. not strangers on the train, but I guess more rope. But and then for me, the university where they set this, the stair, very again, Art Deco, almost film noir. How it look, it looks so great that it's an older university with the colors. Like me growing up, uh, these are the schools I went to. These yeah. schools that were made like in the you know the turn of the twenties, sure. you know. But it's another it's another story that has a lot of may, maybe even more so in terms of um, visual tone, uh, but also like a double indemnity film noirish type sure. thing, which we talked about last week with Tales from the Crypt and our whole uh, recap of EC Comics that they were pulling stories for the EC comics out of like noir stories. Yeah, and they, or they were doing very noirish kind of stuff in the in the noir books they were putting out, like yeah. the crime stuff. So it's such a great idea. I love the, which a little confused me as a kid, is the his dreaming, his fantasies. You have these sure. triple shots. And it's very funny that if you look at Hal Holbrook plays, um, uh, uh, what the hell, it's on the tip of my tongue, what it, uh, Briggs maybe? In Magnum Force, he's like Dirty Harry's sergeant or whatever yeah. and there's that scene where he takes the 44 out and blows her brains out and puts it back and it's I wonder if because Dirty Harry was next year 83 you have Sudden Impact which is make my day I, you know so Dirty Harry's very much in the, psych, the zeitgeist so I wonder sure. if people are laughing oh he was in a Dirty <laughs> Harry movie and he's shooting a 44 you know that I mean it's certainly a bit of an homage to it it's yeah. gotta be right you know and then everyone claps that he blows her a great great gunshot I mean special effect of blowing her brains out yeah. it's amazing and then um, when when you get to the jan- such a great thing too. Janitor just like flipping a coin about what he's going to do next because he's so bored. Am I going to just polish the floors upstairs, or am I going to you know? And he goes to get his coin out, and then that you have the 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 monster there, and the the you know when they call him and dig it out, it's so frightening to me the, that this thing they get out of there, and it's so the box is what would you say a hundred years old or however it yeah. is, and it's sitting under the thing. Uh, that like we said that they called this thing fluffy, and up until this time, Savini. Uh, this is like his coup de gras. He's like, I'm going to be, I've always did makeup stuff, but now I'm actually going to be able to create something. Yeah. But he didn't know, so he said he didn't know how to do it, so he called Rob Bottin up, who Rob Bottin had done the howling at that point. He'd done some other and stuff. Probably had been working on the thing. Yeah, and he's, he's yeah, because that's 82, and he's going on to do Robocop and stuff. So he calls Rob Bottin up because he's like, you know, I'm going to have to actually create an, a fully animatronic kind of glorified Muppet. And yeah. he's like, what do I do? So evidently Rob Bottin spent like an hour and a half on the phone with him going through each. Duck, yeah, you need to you need do, do an armature, you have do to free a thing, and yeah. that. So that's great that they did that. And, and Savini talks about that he got, they copied cat's eyes and they got this company to do like retinas that they were able to put into the actor's eyes to make it look like cat's eyes. Yeah. They molded, they went to some university and got gorilla teeth 
and they were able to make these fangs that were like really quite sharp when they were done doing it. Uh, they put into the the head piece. They put in actually Walkman headphones for the actor, so uh, when he was in there, they would be able to connect it to something, so he'd be able to hear okay communication from either, from either Tom Savini or Romero direction, yeah. which they said they didn't end up really needing because he was actually quite comfortable in there because they had air going in to cool him off. Uh, and they also put like condoms in the face as bladders and they were doing they were using rectal syringes so they were able to pump in fluid to have the uh effects where you see it like scream like you'd see yeah. different motion on the face of it mm-hmm. of doing it and uh at the end they said i think it took like seven or eight people to actually work it yeah. you know and they did this elaborate thing where they have a a picture in the book where it's like for it to walk they have an actor standing and it's him up down to the waist as the as the creature and then right in front of him there's a woman on her knees above with holding two feet and that she's acting as the feet so it looks like from the waist up it's this little thing and they have a floor and for it to go closer to the camera they would just pull the floor back and the two of them would walk forward yeah and then it looks like it's coming to towards you but it's oh it was always so frightening this thing cuz like i said to you i didn't know what it was it was a yeti yeah, or whatever yeah. the fuck, and then it that it's it's how the, the mythos of why it survives so long in this crate. How did it survive? And then the sounds it's making is it sad or is it upset? And then the idea how Holbrook gets that he's gonna go and take his the, this drunk his wife. And this is a perfect way to get rid of her, you know. Um, uh, interestingly, I'll try to this is a quick side note that Dion would appreciate is apparently how Holbrook was very good friends with Dick Smith from the of course from the Mark Twain days yes dick smith had created the makeup for that and uh he called dick smith and said hey you know you should see what these kids are doing it's got some pretty impressive stuff here so dick smith called tom savini and said i want to come to set and see what what, what, all the stuff i'm talking about al holbrook says you you know you're doing something cool so dick smith flew in they picked him up at the airport dick smith spent the day on set and you know, Savini was describing what he did, and Dick Smith was telling him what he was doing recently, which was like ghost story and something else. And so I think I get the sense from the way Savini talks about it that that's how he met Dick Smith and became friends friendly with Dick Smith, and how getting Dick Smith's approval was like you know getting an A from the an A plus from your from the teacher. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. And and he talks for years. He talked about his his his. Uh, love for dick smith and then how dick smith was so open about how he did effects and pioneering the squid on the yeah. on the face and all that um and yeah so then you have this again a way of him being able to get rid of the wife and then him get rid of the the actual uh he's gonna throw it in some like we talked about a couple weeks ago when you want to get rid of something you go to the local quarry <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so he throws it into the quarry and yeah. um they had a little box they did and evidently there's an unused shot where you look into in the special effects book they did a big bust of adrian barbeau's messed up ripped off face that they were going to so when at the end of the story when the creature breaks out and you'd see it come to the surface, not just the eyeballs. You'd see bits come up of the crate. You were going to see bits of Adrian Barbeau come up to the top huh. of her, but they didn't. it's an unused shot. Also, for the last story, he actually did a rubber uh, bolt gun for Leslie Nielsen because Leslie Nielsen, when he's done shooting, he's supposed to throw the gun, and there's a shot of him it bouncing off his wife's head. You know, and the, but they never use that. It must be in an uncut show. But again, this is you're right, the longest one, and it's interesting too when it eats the janitor, and Fritz Weaver goes away and gets the other guy, 
uh, it seems that it knows the uh, uh, the basement. It knows where it is because it pulls itself back into more questions of how does it know <laughs> where to go? You know what I mean? It's yeah, all yeah. just my head thinking of crazy stuff. So I loved, very easy comics for me. Uh, I think Hal Holbrook, again, he's in great shape. He's got to be in his 60s. He's looking like very sinewy. Uh, Blake keeps talking about this uh, this Mark Twain special. He he started in the late '60s doing this one man play of Mark Twain that then premiered on TV that everybody watched either on PBS or a CBS of them broadcasting his one man play. And he became the quintessential Mark Twain one man show. And he's been doing this for the next fifty years. Yeah. And I saw him in 2015 in Terrytown do it. And I was front row seat. And it's amazing because at this point, Hal Holbrook's in his late 80s. And he's doing this one-man one man show of Mark Twain. And it's all monologue around like a desk, I think it was. And there's parts in the, his monologues where he has to cry. And, he's, and we're close enough where you can still see he's still hitting those beats. Yeah. He's still getting misty-eyed. I'm just going to make him and Fritz Weaver amazing actors to get in here. Then the next one, which is, the, I think, the last one. They're where, creeping up on you. Yeah. Which e. is the G. Marshall. Uh, the bug one, amazing. I mean, that's the whole thing where they said they realized to get cockroaches, it must be 50, it's 50 cents a cockroach they had to buy. Yeah. And they needed a certain, they needed like 100 or 300,000 cockroaches. So they went to entomologists. Uh, yeah, they went to, they found the Natural uh, History Museum, right? They went, found a couple of guys that went down to Trinidad. Ray Mendez and David Brody, who were entomologists at the American Museum of Natural History. And they're like, they're like, where do we get cockroaches? And they're like, these guys will get your cockroaches. So they went down to Trinidad and they went into like these bat caves. And apparently, these they feed on like bat dung. Yeah, bat feces. Gua- or guamo, guano, or whatever. And they would just fill bags and crates and they brought back all these. And I said, basically, they would you know, dig a hole in the, in the, in the bat shit. And then they'd shine a light, and then they turn the light off. And when they put the light back on, it was filled with cockroaches. Oh so then they would that. pull them out, and then they turn off the light, and then they turn on the light. And and would be- you hear Romero and Savini talking about this. They're saying that there's seen there's, they say they've seen pictures where they're like up to the waist in roaches in these caves, yeah. or that they were able to lay on their backs. I don't know how real this is and that there's so many roaches that they were able to move yeah that they because there's move. so many roaches i mean the bot their body would move because there's so many roaches below them so i think they collect like twenty thousand of these things or even i think there are several hundred and then they like, bring them up and they oh. and they take two trailers <laughs> take take over two makeup trailers and fill them with uh you know with these bugs in barrels and, and they're stuff. giving them dog food to eat and they breed and they start to breed and so they end up with like you know like 250,000 of these things of or these whatever. Trinidadian whatever you call that cockroaches that they use in this scene and apparently like you know the part of the deal was that they would have to kill them all at the end yeah which is sad because they can't be bringing like but apparently like yeah there's no way that they I mean you see like you know you think about that they that's disgusting they're talking about like if you take the phone apart in the phone they'd be because as soon as the lights go on, they would, they would all scatter. Yeah, and that was that was the hard thing. You can't direct and them. And they tried to like seal the set, and they tried to put Vaseline around the top of the set. They thought they would crawl up the walls and just fall and back down. And then either get stuck or slide back down. They wouldn't be able to crawl on the on the Vaseline, but apparently that didn't work. And so they you know they ended up taking the props and stuff. So apparently, like allegedly, as the urban legend goes, that like. Carnegie Mellon, certain parts of Carnegie Mellon have a roach, still to this day have a roach problem because they took some of these things back to Carnegie Mellon, the, the college, because I think the set designer 
production designer worked at Carnegie Mellon. And then also, like, whoever took over that school to make offices or whatever, they to this day have a roach problem. And apparently, yeah, they think there's, there's roach these Trinidadian roaches that have. <laughs> these Trinidadian roaches are all over the Pittsburgh area. Because of the, cause you think of how many they brought up and it's, it's getting away. And then they, there's a, uh, another guy, one of the production assistants. We should give a shout out to Cletus Anderson, who I guess it was the production assistant who designed all this. Yeah. Amazing, uh, his, set, his production set design. But the, he said that one of the guys saying that like they had like a scissor lift. And they saw all these roaches go under it, and then like the the teamster guy was coming to pick it up that day. He's like, "You done with the scissor lift?" And he's like, "Sure, take it away." <laughs> and then you know, because he didn't want to have to then for the next hour try to get all these cockroaches out of the mechanics of it. So you know, it's stuff like that where these are these roaches travel out of there. But they said E.G. Marshall, they called him E.J. 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 That that you know, and then uh, you know they loved him. He was great to work with. You know, he. Uh, I love the idea of him being in a New York City high rise, and then there's the blackout again. That's the back to the night gallery, or yeah. what really happened, you know, the New York City blackouts at the time, and that his uh, uh, disgustingness for the roaches, and that you know all this stuff, and it you know it's a comeuppance, and he's so good at it with him yelling at the people on the phone. I want him here in the Disney vacation, or he's not gonna have a fucking job, or the guy died, he killed himself, and that the the other guy that comes to be you know, the exterminator to help the bugs, and and then them even talking through the futuristic, <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah. you know it's really good. For the budget restrictions you hear that they had, sure. it's 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 uh, really really interesting that they were able to do all that and and, and get all that kind of stuff. Um, now this is, I think, just a very quick good uh, transition into the Dion brought in. I had a thing about Bingo O'Malley. Yeah, I first saw uh, in the '90s or late '80s or early '90s. Uh, Romero and Argento tried attempted to do, well they did another anthology movie called Two Evil Eyes now originally uh, that was supposed to be they wanted to get a carpenter they wanted to do like four or five stories all by masters of horror and they, to adapt Edgar Allan Poe's stories sure it ends up only being Romero and Argento which I think we probably talk a little bit about in uh, Dawn of the Dead because that was also a, a Romero Argento collaboration uh, but I probably saw Two Evil Eyes before I saw Creepshow, definitely before I fell in love with Creepshow. And I always really liked the Dario Argento episode, but I always kind of hated the Romero episode until I kind of fell in love with Creepshow and I became a fan of Creepshow. Okay. And I realized that maybe what I didn't like about it is it li- it is like this weird f- sixth Creep show story. Oh, okay. It's like almost a um, yeah. And uh, so uh, R- Romero adapts the ninth, the eighteen forty five short story by a grandpa called "The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar." Lo- a great short story if you haven't read it. And so what he does is he ends up making it a very like film noir. This woman wants to do away with her husband to get the. She's having an affair with the husband's doctor. And she wants to do it with her husband so that they can f- collect the insurance money. Very double indemnity. And its tone is very similar, maybe not with the primary colors necessarily, but th- its tone is very creep show. And it's almost its entire cast is from a creep show. You have Tom Atkins as like the hard nosed detective. Very Night of the Creeps. Very Night of the Creeps. Thrill me. <laughs> uh, you got Adrian Barbeau, who's in this. You have. Uh, E.G. Marshall, I think, plays their lawyer. And uh, Bingo O'Malley, 
who we talked about, who's in the uh, Lonesome, Stephen King, the Stephen King story, plays all the, the parts. The, the Jordy Burrow, he's the dying husband, the one that's kept alive. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And so I, I totally recommend uh, Savini. The effects done by Savini. Effects are done exactly. Though. Even the effects are done. And by And he has Savini. a cameo, right? In it, he's like a psycho that's getting arrested. Yeah, probably at the, the very beginning. One. Of it, yeah. Either at the very beginning of Romero's or the very beginning. Yeah, I guess you're right. Probably in this. In the, I've only Black seen Cat it once one. with you. But so I never really got it. But now that I've fallen in love with Creepshow, it's totally worth checking out because it does feel like a sixth story, or at least a very loving homage to his work on um, uh, Creepshow. There's also some trivial things like I've heard that uh, Stephen King was writing Christine while they made Creepshow, and oh. Christine is named after George Romero's wife. Who's oh, Christine? Nice. Uh, when you read these in, these little uh, these magazine articles, they're always talking about like what's on the horizon, and uh, this is around the time the thing hadn't come out yet and and completely flopped yet. So Carpenter's <laughs> working on his version of Firestarter, which was written his the script he was going to do was written by Bill Lancaster, who wrote the script for the thing. And we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, the Superman. Movies, the guy who the guys who did that, they they had the deal. They put out, uh, I think, Firestarter and some of these other Cat's Eyes. Yeah, you know, it was all. But all originally, stuff. it was going to be like a Universal Picture directed by Carpenter until the thing flopped. And then they were they wanted and to go, and then they took him off of it, and then it kind of died. Cujo's at the time as this is about to go into production. Uh, the Dead Zone, they just had by the time this came out, had just rejected Stephen King's version, of his script of the Dead Zone, you know, De Laurentiis, and that becomes. Uh, a Cronenberg movie, um, and uh, and around this time they talk about Laurel Entertainment owns the rights to a book called Mayday by Thomas Block, which is essentially like a zombies on a plane story. Yeah, uh, where this like supersonic airliner gets uh, accidentally kind of shot by a Navy missile testing. It's an unarmed. Uh, missile, but it ends up damaging the plane and they lose compression. They go down to the pilot ends up putting it uh, into autopilot at a, at a at a at an altitude where they can breathe. But a bunch of the but all the people on the plane are brain damaged, <laughs> so they essentially become zombies. And apparently, this gets made into a television movie in two thousand five for CBS, starring Aidan Quinn, Charles Dutton, who you brought up earlier from Rock, yeah, and Dean Cain. Oh, and that sounds really familiar. That that um that movie. But uh, they talk about like on the horizon for it's Laurel that. is like we own the rights. To, we just got the rights to this book Mayday. Uh, that's freaking crazy. Um, and then the wraparound we talked about the Atkins where he comes back and the, the son gets to come up in because he ordered a voodoo doll and he's stabbing the the voodoo doll and he's stabbing Tom Atkins in it. Um, and the skull guy we talked about that the creep show the 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 main kind of guy they named him Raul and. They actually went and purchased a real skeleton from Carolina Biological because they needed to save time. They couldn't. They didn't want to fabricate a whole skeleton, so the fuck it, we'll go buy one. So they bought this real skeleton, and they did this ingenious design where they thought they they it was going to have eleven people be able to do this. Where they put it on a jib arm that was on a dolly, a really long arm, because they thought the thing would then fly away from the window. So you had like. 11 people moving the thing. One thing, guy remote controlling, tr- making it smile. Another one making the, the animatronic for it to beckon. And then it was supposed to fly up and away. But then Savini's like, as soon as he beckons to, and turns, it turns into a cartoon. So you'll lose the whole yeah. effect we had of it on a jib arm moving up and all that. And then um, lastly, uh, 
the funny thing is, getting back to old Leslie Nielsen, evidently on set, as amazing as his performance was, he's a freaking jokester. Yeah. So he had a fart machine in his pocket. So evidently he would just, when they're like about to call action, he'd be like... <laughs> and this became a thing with them, that they were laughing so hard, they... they 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 couldn't get over him how much of a jokester like and it's funny because then if you think of if that's his he always wanted to be a funny man they talk about even in the old days they made they tried to have him be a leading yeah. man like in, in Forbidden Planet he just wanted to be this kind of a guy he goes on in, in his later life he reinvents himself as this you know funny man in this in these in these satiristic over the top movies but he's having this fart machine going off in between takes and making everybody laugh and all that and then they would say even to the point where they would go out to dinner with him and people would be coming up to him and ask hey my gosh you're Leslie he'd say, yeah and he'd be like. Pfft. And he'd be yeah. doing this, and people would be repulsed, and people would go up to him and be like, "You're disgusting! How dare you!" And he would laugh at it, and he wouldn't care what people thought. Like, yeah. he was, so it's just so funny that you know that this he's doing this on the side, and that made me think I want to get a fart. I'm <laughs> sure since you brought up the animation, I should give a very quick shout out to Rick Catazone, who's yeah. the animator yeah. for all the animated stuff. Uh, he, apparently, you know, when Romero had his production company doing industrials and commercials, in the office building was these this guy, these guys, the company called the Animators. Um, and so he knew them for a long time, and uh, they, the animators, were the company that Romero hired to put the opening titles on Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, and they got they got him to animate all that animate the the, the like the connecting tissue of all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, and the and the creepy yeah. guy and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, that then goes hand in hand with Jack Kamen doing the actual art. So I, I love this movie. And I they eventually a- did release a comic book of it with, with the cover art and written by Jack Kamen, but the interior art of the released comic book is by the great Bernie Wrightson, which I believe we brought up briefly uh, last yeah. week as well. So uh, fabulous movie. Uh, another great, great installment. Stephen King, Romero doing some great stuff together. Um, and this is ends episode three of our 2019 horror movie extravaganza uh we've got one more one more left for next week one more in the chamber yeah before <laughs> the end of the season um in the meantime if you're if you're bored and you want more of us you can always check our back catalog out at saturday night movie sleepovers we, we have, have the website other previous october fest yeah of horror we've been movies. doing it you for years vi- now visit um and blake what do you have uh you can check out back episodes of score to death the podcast and of course uh Check out Cuts from the Crypt, which I do for the Damn Fine Network. Right now is running is the uh, my Halloween episode. Nice. Which is all music from uh, horror movies revolving around Halloween. And uh, coming up in a week or two, very quickly, uh, for my October episode at the end of October, I'm going to have a very special guest. Oh, so we should look forward to that. Yeah, so check that out. And, of course... Uh, buy in bulk as John Pizzarelli would say of scored to death conversations with some of Horace Grace composers which is my book uh, which you can find on Amazon from other re- book retailers and for me directly at scoredtodeath.com and uh, Dion also has a wonderful book that you should buy in bulk yes called Blood in the Streets available on Amazon Barnes and Noble wherever you want to get your uh, books from uh, it's available in paperback ebook and audiobook if you don't read uh, if you like 70s cop movies, uh, that kind of a thing, thrillers, crime fiction, historical fiction, it's like that. You could check that out. Uh, and and buy if a copy you already have uh, scored to death 
as a paperback, feel free to buy it uh, for your Kindle too, because yeah, you have I, have, I have a better deal on the e- I make more money on the ebook. So get us, the, yeah, get that, you know. <laughs> and uh, CLNS Media Network, we should bring them up. We're good friends with them. They help us out. Of course, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other places you find podcasts, including including where you're listening to us right now. <laughs> exactly. And as we always say, if you want to go to our regular website, you can find some extras with this episode. We'll have some extras up. You know, if you want to go uh, leave us a comment, questions, concerns, recommendations, have a talk with us, engage us. We're very engageable. We just sit there waiting for people to say something <laughs> and to us. Please, and please follow us on social media at Fat Sleepovers. Yeah, and our individual social medias. And before you know it, it's going to be next week, and we're going to be back with one more installment of the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers 2019 Horror Movie Extravaganza. So until next time, later. Blackula is back. All new, all powerful. (laughs) Blackula, the Black Prince of Shadows, rises from his grave to stalk the earth again in the all new motion picture chilla. Scream, Blackula, scream. (laughs) Blackula returns, quenching his thirst for blood in a death trap for his enemies. Blackula, more horrifying than Dracula. Screaming for revenge against a voodoo cult of evil. See ah! Scream, Blackula Scream, all new, rated PG, starring William Marshall, Don Mitchell, and Pam Greer, the sensuous godmother of coffee. You were terrified at Blackula. Now the Prince of Shadows returns in Scream, Blackula Scream. This is basic civil defense information from the Department of Defense, Office of Civil Defense, Washington. There's one easy, sensible thing your family should do to prepare for a possible time of emergency. Set aside a few simple, basic supplies you'll need to take to the public fallout shelter. Supplies to help keep you and your family alive and well in event of enemy attack. For instance, any special medicines or diet foods required by members of the family, insulin, heart tablets, baby food, and other infant supplies, blankets, a battery-powered radio, a flashlight, extra batteries. And if the nearest public shelter hasn't been stocked yet with emergency rations and supplies, you'll need to take as much food and water as you can carry. Emergency supplies are needed for a private home shelter, too. Lay in enough food, canned or packaged, and preferably pre-cooked for two weeks, plus enough drinking water in tightly kept containers or jars to give each person at least a quart a day or more. For help in making up a list of needed supplies, consult your local civil defense office.